How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Who are you? <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> yeah, because we always get chatting and then we get distracted. From yeah, it's true. Uh, it's a good point. Uh, my name is Scotty Milder. <laughs> I'm a horror author, filmmaker here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Heck yes. And I am. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I guess I'll just tell you since you weren't going to ask. I am Amelia Imporo. I'm an actor and theater maker. Also in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this is the Weirdest Thing Podcast. This is our podcast about weird shit. Yay. Yeah. And this is also an important month for a couple reasons. And yeah. so that's what our stories, I believe, are going yeah. to all around. Yeah, uh, so I think sure you're going first. Do you want to just dive right in? Yeah, why not? I'm sure we'll get to talking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> gabbing about uh, all sorts of related and unrelated matters as the episode progresses. So yeah, so this is, uh, so it's February, it's Black History Month. So my story is going to be uh, sort of dedicated to that. And I'm going to talk to you about Paul Williams' Architect to the Stars. Ooh. Yeah. Sources for this are Wikipedia, obviously, Curbed mm-hmm. Los Angeles, which is a great website all about Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. I've looked at it. It's fantastic. Yeah, There's it's so much like cool just stuff you would never expect to find on there. Yeah. 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 Like I, I actually fell down into s- several rabbit holes because it was like, you know, articles about one thing that then led to another, to another, mm-hmm. to another. Uh, and that happened multiple times over <laughs> the research for this. <laughs> the LA Times, the Paul Williams Project. NPR Architectural Digest, an episode of the podcast 99% Invisible, which is a design and architecture podcast. Oh, cool. And a documentary on PBS called Hollywood's Architect, the Paul R. Williams story. Nice. So let's get cracking. Okay. Yeah, so I've, never, I've, I've just gonna say, I've never heard of him. So I'm excited. This will be. I'm excited for everybody too. I'm excited <laughs> to share this because it's a super cool story. Okay. So a brief history of Los Angeles in 3000 BC. Just kidding. We're not going to go back that far. Um, (laughs) I was like, really? (laughs) The history of Los Angeles does in fact date back to 3000 BC, but I am not going to get into all of that. Uh, There's a Exactly. You know, there's a lot of like stealing of lands of indigenous people. Uh, There's a whole thing about the Spanish moving in there. There's also a weird thing about like Russian advancement that had to do with Alaska and Northern Mm -hmm. California. And that's why there are all these like mission towns and presidios and all that stuff. The history of California, it's like the history of Texas. Yeah. Like these states in particular, their histories are just fascinating. There's just so much more than you know. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's insane, but we're not going to start there. We're yeah. actually <laughs> in the late 1870s, and at this point, Los Angeles is still pretty much like a village. Mm-hmm. It's this like tiny little village of about 5,000 people, and it's around this time that LA and actually all of Southern California starts being advertised as a place where the sick of mind and body could come to rehabilitate. Original advertising for the city really drives this point home and makes LA look like this health 
oasis that just must have looked like heaven to mm-hmm. anybody that was coming from like the Midwest, from back east, anything. Lots of, you know, lots of oranges and right trees and water and it's beautiful. Uh, a brochure from the period said, quote, invalids come here by the hundreds and in every case where they are not past all hope, they speedily find that precious boon which they have sought in vain in every other clime. Which is basically like, if you're not going to die, then you'll live um, <laughs> in beautiful California. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So in 1893, Chester and Lila Williams migrate to Los Angeles from Memphis, Tennessee with their oldest son, Chester Jr., to start like a fruit selling business. Uh, From what I can tell, there was like a circular plaza in Los Angeles and the wagons would pull up and people would sell their stuff, all that kind of stuff. Paul was born in LA on February 18th, 1894. By 1898, both of his parents were dead from tuberculosis. Mm. Yeah. Um, Like you're supposed to head to these climates to avoid tuberculosis. They had tuberculosis when they moved. Oh, uh, so that's probably yeah. why. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm all I'm all judging California, but it's actually Tennessee's fault. So <laughs> you're like all um false advertising. Um, <laughs> yes. So they had tuberculosis, but succumbed. Paul's father, I think, within like a year of him being born, and his mother within a few years of that. So Chester and Paul enter the foster care system. Mm. Chester actually ends up dying from pneumonia in his early 20s, which leaves mm. Paul completely orphaned. Oh. Um Paul was actually eventually adopted by Charles and Emily Clarkson. Emily in particular really, really encouraged young Paul. Like she was like, this guy, this kid is super bright. He's wonderful. Mm -hmm. He's amazing. You know, she frequently told him like, you can be anything you want. All of this stuff really encouraged him. Yeah. To like dream big. Mm -hmm. Okay. At this time, life for black folks in LA was weird i i'd like i don't i don't, <laughs> like, I don't know like exactly the, rest of the country <laughs> i don't exactly know how to describe it because there was 100% still prejudice and racism right um but it wasn't the like explicitly violent racism that existed in the south right black folks could own land, they could start businesses. There were places that they couldn't go and jobs that they couldn't have. But because Los Angeles at this time was so small, it was a more like fluid community. There couldn't be a black school for Paul to go to because there were like 30 kids. Right. So he went, he ended up going to all white schools. So like not great maybe, but maybe better than a lot of the rest of the country. Yeah, it seemed a little bit like there was like, I think the way I saw it described in one source was like de facto segregation, mm-hmm. but it seems, again, I'm not a historian. Uh, I like that I said again, like I've stated that multiple times in this podcast. <laughs> I am not a historian. I am not a historian, but it seems like it was, the sentiment was sort of like, you like you had to stay over there. And when you, like, while you're staying over there, you can kind of do almost anything you want, but you just kind of got to stay over there. Yeah. You know, again, didn't have the explicit threat of racial violence that, you know, Tennessee probably did. Yeah. So Paul is going to these all white schools. He's killing it. He's excelling in it. He goes on to get a job as a newsboy. And in 1908, at the age of 14, Paul starts going to the highly selective Los Angeles Polytechnic High School. Uh, Mm. It is there that Paul comes up against what he would later call 
quote, the blank wall of discouragement. Mm. He told someone, some sources say a teacher, other sources say a counselor. He told someone that he had, that he wanted to be an architect and was told, quote, whoever heard of a Negro architect. Mm. That person then went on to say, you should become a doctor or a lawyer because your people will always need doctors and lawyers. Huh. That's that's like such a weird like racist slash but also encouraging like like that that's a that's a weird statement to wrap my head around. <laughs> right. And there's I mean honestly his story has a lot of that. And it is. It's like, you know, it's like don't become an architect, go become a doctor and a lawyer. And like yes, those are good jobs, but the underpinning of it is because black people will always be unhealthy and black people will always be in trouble with right. the law, which that feels gross. That's that's um, super gross. It's also it's like Hey, you're smart enough to do these things, so that's cool. But we're still going to restrict your dreams because you're black. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like you want to do this specific thing, and your skin color doesn't allow it. So you can do this other specific cool thing, but only this. Like, right? Yeah. yeah. So Paul hears that, and he sort of quietly like, you know, we'll see about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he graduates from high school, and he goes about trying to figure out how to become an architect in Los Angeles at this time. They're like five avenues to becoming an architect. Mm. Uh, you could apprentice for an established architect, get a degree from a university, get a correspondence school degree, which is essentially like distance learning, right. work for a contractor or get into landscape architecture or interiors. Okay. Uh, in the PBS documentary, an architecture historian by the name of Dr. Wesley Henderson says that he never heard of a white architect doing more than two. Mm-hmm. Paul Williams did all five. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Like he was just like, where can I get it? Like, how can I break into this business? I'm going to do this shit. Yeah. Yeah. He actually ended up getting his degree in structural engineering from University of Southern California. Okay. Uh, They didn't have an architecture program, but they had an architectural engineering program. Mm, Um, If I know anything about USC, which I do just a little bit, I am certain that they are continuing to use still to this day, Paul Williams photo in their brochure. Um, Okay, so because he had no template, like there was no there was no example that he could look at about how to be a black man wanting to become an architect. He was kind of making it up as he went. And like I said, he was working in all of these things. He was working construction. He was doing landscaping. He was mm-hmm. getting various degrees from various institutions. One thing, though, that did prove super helpful were architectural competitions. And this is because they were blind competitions. Ah. Yeah. So the judges had no idea of his race, his age, nothing. And he started to win a lot of them. And that had this benefit of bringing his work to the attention of the most prominent architects in the city. And this is people like John Austin, who built Griffith Observatory, Mm -hmm. LA City Hall, the Shrine Auditorium, and residential architect Reginald Johnson, who would go on to become an important mentor. Uh, Mm. for Paul. He became a certified architect in California in 1921 at the age of 27, making him the first certified black architect west of the Mississippi. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and when, what year? 1921. Hmm. 
He becomes the first black member of the American Institute of Architecture in 1923. I'll just remind our listeners that the American Institute of Architecture like poo-pooed Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> yeah. and then Frank Lloyd Wright was like, I don't want to be part of your stupid group anyways. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so he became a member of the AIA in 1923, and he ended up opening his own architectural office at the age of 28. So wow. obviously, That's... dude is... is He's got it going on. Yeah, Yeah, he's got it going on. So like a very, one of the reasons why I think the story is so interesting, in addition to all of the reasons, all of the other reasons that it's very interesting is because Scotty knows this. I'm sort of fascinated with early Los Angeles Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. And so I've been consuming a lot of material about it, but Paul Williams and like the city of Los Angeles actually kind of grew up at the same time. Interesting. And they were like, they were like developing yeah. at the well, same yeah, time. Well, yeah, because that time, like you said, I just know a little bit about this from, you know, my film school education mm-hmm. is that Los Angeles really like kind of before 1900, 1910, there was like nothing there. It was like, I think by it like- farm. 19- It was farmland. It was, it was like farmland. dairies and- citrus groves and yeah I mean, it's, you know. it's insane when you when you read about how fast la just exploded so yeah. he was like they're at the exact right time well and actually thanks for the perfect leading so <laughs> uh los angeles is continuing to basically double its population every year between 1880 and 1900 the population went so in those 20 years the population exploded from 5,000 to over 100,000. Wow. That's a massive explosion in population. That's. Uh, can I just break in real quick with something yeah. else that I learned in film school? Mm-hmm. So when the early filmmakers like who had sort of started with Thomas Edison, you know, back on, all on the East Coast, you know, they're all mm-hmm. in New York, New Jersey, everything. They started being like, we need to go somewhere with like better weather, more sunshine, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And they started looking at a few places and I think they were somewhere in Florida and then they were like, ooh, hurricanes, bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so they narrowed it down to two places that they were going to go to relocate to build their studio. Uh-huh. One was Los Angeles and the uh-huh. other was Santa Fe. We could have been. We could have <laughs> been. We were like, I, I'm actually kind of glad. I'm kind of glad that we don't have that here. Me too. <laughs> when you think about like a city that doubles in size every year. like Jesus. Wow. No. Yeah, there was also a lot of shade talking about Thomas Edison because uh, I, I don't yeah. know if our listeners know this, but Thomas Edison was an asshole. He was, uh, he was a total dick. I should do it. I should do an episode just on him being a dick. But anyway. Yeah. Be, and it, there's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of theft of intellectual property and then he would steal it and he'd be like, well, no, this is mine now and nobody can use it. He was a big old dick. Um, the, the wars between him and Tesla and how Edison basically just destroyed Tesla. It was like, yeah. It's crazy. Uh, so tune in for that episode. Yeah. Some point. Okay. So LA is like exploding in population, which of course means that a lot of stuff needs to be built. Williams knows this and uses it to his advantage. He's got the skills and the city needs him. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of his first big breaks is the Flint Ridge development north of Los Angeles. I don't know if this develop, does it still exist? Mm -hmm. It's now it's La Canada or La Canada Flint Ridge. Okay. I just know that because there was a big fire out there when I was living there in 2009. (laughs) So Interesting. Okay. I was about to be like, when was that fire? Because, well, there's, I'll get to it later. Okay. Okay, So the Flint Ridge development is built by former Senator Frank Flint, who Mm. actually used to be a client of Williams when he was a newsboy. And Flint was so impressed with Williams when he met him as a young boy that he sort of kept his eye on him. 
time and, and always sort of like stayed up to date on what he was doing. And so when he was like, I'm going to build all these houses, he went to Williams and was like, hey, will you build my house? Oh, nice. And Williams was like, absolutely. And so from there, he starts doing more of the houses in the development. And that introduces Williams to the world of luxury homes mm. and more importantly, the people who could afford them. Yeah. This includes people like horse breeder Jack Atkin. Williams designed a gorgeous English style manor overlooking Pasadena for Atkin. The house right. was valued at $350,000 in 1929. In oh, wow. 1929, I mean, during the Great Depression, it was valued at $350,000. Is it still standing, do you know? I'm going to get to that in a while. Okay, because I've just got to imagine that's like multiple millions of dollars now. It has to be. I yeah. And I, you know, I love a good modern day currency conversion, but I did not do it for this okay. one. Um, <laughs> there was too much information. Yeah. Um, so Williams designs the house for Atkins. Atkins takes a look at the plan and is like, I love everything about it, but the price. I told mm. the fellows at the racetrack that this was going to be a $500,000 home. So can you add 150,000 to it? And Paul was like, you bet your ass I can. Yeah. Um, Fuck yeah, I can. <laughs> yeah. And it's stunning. I mean, like yeah. materials and masons and stuff were brought over from Europe for the house. It's, oh, it, it was gorgeous. Nice. So gorgeous. Uh, the house, just a little bit about this house. The house would go on to be used in movies all the time, dating all the way back to Topper in 1937 mm -hmm. with Cary Grant. Mm -hmm. While Atkins owned the home, he would rent it to be used in movies, taking the proceeds and giving the money to local food banks or homeless charities. Oh, I like this jackass. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, probably if you dig into it, there's some like bullshit that we're going to get mad at. But as of now, I like yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this story. I was actually having the discussion recently with somebody on Instagram that at this point, it's just trying to figure out what level of problematic you're comfortable with because right. everybody is problematic. <laughs> yeah. The house went on to be used anytime they needed like an English manor looking mm. home and they didn't want, like if they needed to film something that took place in England, but they didn't want to go to England, they'd yeah. use this house. Okay. It ended up in episodes of Murder She Wrote and Three Men and a Little Lady. Oh, yeah. I totally I remember that yep. fucking house from that yep. fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> that fucking little lady. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so Williams is obviously an incredible architect, but yeah. he's black. And while Los Angeles might not be Mississippi, it's still a white town in the 1920s. Right. It's segregated and Paul's white clients don't want to sit next to a black architect during meetings. Mm. Architecture is a close contact business. Right. You're, you know, you're drawing stuff, you're looking at, you're having to sit together, you're making changes, you're looking over plans. So it's, it's something that the architect and his client have to be in close proximity to. Right. And Williams is black and he's yeah. dealing with people that don't want to sit. They, they will have somebody, they will have a black man design their home, but they won't sit next to him. That's just, that's it just infuriating. I mean, it, yeah. again, just breaking real quick. One night in Miami, like that first Bow Bridges scene in One Night in Miami. If you if you guys haven't seen it yet, you got to see it. But it's it's just amazing how I don't want to give it away, but it's just amazing how quickly that relationship turns. Yeah, I mean, it's like a slap in the face. Oh, it, like as as a as a you know like white presenting light skinned Latina like me viewing that was like a slap in the face. So yeah, it's it's horrifying. Yeah, it's bad. So because of this, Williams learns to draft and draw upside down mm. completely. 
so upside down. Literally, so he can be across the table from the white uh-huh. people. And he's like sketching a living room upside down uh, so that the client can see it right side up. He's doing it upside down. I mean, I'm like simultaneously amazed and really pissed off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm amazed um, at him, but just the fact that he had to do that is insane. Yeah. So here's one of the things that I'm not going to be able to get into too much. I'm going to talk about it just a little bit, but I'm not going to be able to get into it too much. I'm sure that there are people who could look at Paul Williams' story and about what I'm about to talk about and this thing of like drafting upside down and a couple of the other things that I will also talk about and can see it as like, here's this man who's extraordinarily skilled and he is bending to the will of people who are racist. Right. And then there's the way that Paul saw it. There's the way that that Paul Williams saw it. In 1963, in a piece for Ebony Magazine, Williams himself describes this thing of drafting upside down as, Mm -hmm. quote, a gimmick which still intrigues a client. Hmm. His granddaughter, Karen Elise Hudson, said, quote, there's a point at which you say, no matter how good I am, this is 1920s America. I may not be accepted, so let me do the things that make sure people accept me. And as a result, he developed a little Barnum and Bailey. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he had to do what he had to do. And also, like, I mean, it's just another example of, you know, for women, for Black people, for any minority, you just got to be that much better than your average mediocre white person. Yes. To yeah. get by. Yeah. Precisely. Another group who was doing their own Barnum and Bailey were the Jewish folks who were <laughs> inventing Hollywood at the same time. This is a group that is reinventing themselves. They're doing everything they can to show that they're just as good as the American elite. There's mm. definitely some ass- assimilation going on. They're anglicizing right. their names and doing stuff like that. But they also don't have a ton of preconceptions about who they work with. They're suffering from the same discrimination from the WASP power structure. Right you know, self-made people. And at the end of the day, they just want to work with the most talented people available. Dr. Lonnie Bunch, who is also on the PBS documentary, says, quote, this strain of nonconformity also was a bubble that allowed Paul Williams to get in. And Mm -hmm. once he got in, he began to show how good he was. So that's what he does. He's like finding the ways to sort of like game the system. Yeah. So that's how he gets his first big Hollywood client, which is none other than Lon Chaney Sr. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's just made me so happy. (laughs) I know. I knew that was going to be, I knew that was going to be exciting for you. Um, So Cheney contracted Williams to build him a home in Beverly Hills, but unfortunately Cheney got sick with pneumonia and died before he was able to actually move into the house. This would have been early thirties. Yeah. But that's his entryway. So from there he goes on to, he, he like quickly gains this reputation as being this architect for the stars to name a few of the people. uh, And this is literally a few of the people that he designed homes for that includes Tyrone Power, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, Cary mm. Grant, Barbara Stanwyck, wow. um, and tons more. From there, Williams begins to get into commercial design. Mm-hmm. He's designing houses up to this point, and then he starts to get into commercial design. And he's contracted by two clients who want their businesses to look like homes, essentially. And that's mm. Saks Fifth Avenue and the Music Corporation of America. If you look at pictures from that original Los Angeles Saks, the inside of it looks, it it looks like a living room. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And the building for the Music Corporation of America, also known as MCA, it's like they pulled a New England colonial home and just plopped it 
down in Los Angeles. It is now the home of Paradigm Talent. I've been, I had meetings there. I, and yeah. I remember thinking that building. What the fuck is this building doing? Well, I, I remember like going in and just, I think that was like my first official Hollywood meeting and, and didn't end up getting signed by them. This would have mm -hmm. been 2007, 2008, I think. Yeah. And I very clearly remember that building going in and just being like, this is so cozy and like yep. welcoming. It was like this great welcoming feeling for LA, which of course was immediately dashed. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I love this town. Smashed. Smash. Stomp. <laughs> um, cool. That's actually yeah. very interesting to know because that'll tie in uh, with another part of the story a little bit later on. So Williams is navigating his career as like the only black architect, <laughs> you yeah. know, like west of the Mississippi. And he knew that the deck was stacked against him. So he starts cultivating a couple of things that just basically help him survive. One is the drafting upside down. The second was that he always made sure that he looked like he belonged among the elite. So mm. like double-breasted suits, perfectly positioned pocket square, hair done. He had this fussy little mustache that was always perfectly groomed. Mm -hmm. um, his grandson, who they interview, they also interview in the PBS doc, said, quote, he always looked pressed. Another one, another trick that he created or that he cultivated was when he toured construction sites, he would always clasp his hands behind his back, which had the effect of giving him this sort of like, you know, like British royalty sort of right. appearance. But what he was actually doing was sort of allowing slash making his white clients initiate bodily contact. Ah. So he wasn't going to go and reach for them and be rebuffed. It was much more like you can come to me. So again, yeah. it's these ways of like working within, again, I know that there might be people that would look at him and, you know, would say like you subjugated yourself, right? Right. But he's finding these ways to make this stuff work for him to like subvert these prejudices mm -hmm. in a way that allowed him to become extraordinarily successful. Well, yeah. And I mean, you've, you've just anyone who wants to like turn their nose up at him. I mean, you got to think those 1920s, 1930s, like he had to do what he had to do. Yeah. To, yeah. To, there be are... the, to be the groundbreaker for everyone yeah. else coming after him. You know? Yeah, yeah. And he talks about that a lot. He talks about like, there are a lot of quotes from him that say, basically, he knew that every home he built that he would never be allowed to live in, every building he designed for a business that he would not be allowed to be a patron of, he knew that he was leaving the doors open for the generations that came behind him. Right. The fourth thing that he would do is that as his career was growing and people were starting to vie for his services, people would go to these gorgeous houses, these Paul Williams designed houses, and they'd be like, you know, Barbara Stanwyck, who designed your house? And she'd say, oh, Paul Williams. Mm -hmm. And they would be like, oh, I'm going to get him. I'm building a home. I would like him to build my house. There's nothing in his name. And they certainly right. didn't think that they were going to walk into an office and meet a black architect. Yes. Probably not even on their radar. Yeah. yeah. They probably didn't even think it was a possibility. So it would happen where he would meet with these clients and he could see that they were like, oh, you know, you're a black man and I'm super mm -hmm. uncomfortable with this because I'm a fucking racist. And right. they would like start to, you know, sort of like recoil and retreat. And like the second he would see them doing that, he would say, he would just ask them one question. And that question was, how much do you plan on spending on your home? And they mm -hmm. would say something like, you know, like around $8,000 to which Paul Williams would respond, oh, 
oh, well, I'm so sorry. I don't take commissions for less than $10,000. And immediately they were like, well, now I have to have him. <laughs> right. Oh man, he's, he's a genius on so many levels. <laughs> yes. That's yeah. Amazing. William said, quote, nothing so impresses the average American than the illusion of financial success, mm -hmm. especially if that success is encountered in an unexpected quarter. Right. Yeah, just he, game he just, in the system. He knew. He knew what he had to do. But like I said, he's still designing buildings for businesses and homes for neighborhoods that don't allow black people. For example, he designed, uh, among other things, but I think it like the pool bar and some other stuff, among other things, the Crescent Wings for the Beverly Hills Hotel. It's actually his writing that you see on the sign. That's oh, okay. his actual script that is the Beverly Hills Hotel logo. He wouldn't have been allowed to stay at the hotel. And when he had meetings at the pool, he had to wait until the client's arrived or he wouldn't be seated, let alone served. Uh, yeah. He's also the one that came up with, so not only did he design the crescent ring, there's also a little coffee bar in there that he designed. He picked the banana leaf wallpaper that the hotel is famous for. Right. And he picked the pink and green color scheme for the hotel. Okay. Like top to bottom, he's doing so, the entire yeah. thing. Yeah. Designs of note. He designed Frank Sinatra's push button house, which was featured on person to person with Edward R. Murrow. I don't know if you know anything about this house. Do you know anything about this no, house? Okay. So, <laughs> so basically between marriages, Frank Sinatra was like, I need a bachelor pad. Of course he did. Yeah. yeah. And he actually like really went to Paul Williams to sort of teach him how to live like a movie star. Mm. Because at this point, Frank Sinatra was a recording artist, but this is as he was starting to like make his entrance into Hollywood. Yeah. So he was so like, he I want this bachelor like, pad. He wasn't like the icon that he became yet. No, this house, I think, helped him get there. <laughs> this house sounds badass. So it's this gorgeously designed thing. All the furniture is white lacquer. The like accoutrement is black, red, and orange. It's all very like Far East Asian designed. The push button comes from the fact that, like I said, Frank Sinatra was like, teach me how to live like a movie star. And Paul Williams was like, okay, we're going to push a button and your bed's going to like slide out of this compartment on the wall. <laughs> To push another button and the bed's gonna like zoom out onto the patio like it was all of this like futuristic i just yeah. think of if in goodfellas when she just points the remote at the wall and it like splits um and a rock I think wall it's like so those like old 1960s TVs or whatever. Yes. Like, yeah. Look at my Jetson's house from the future. Yes. Yeah. He puts in, you know, Frank's, it's Frank Sinatra. So he's like, hey, right. I want to make sure like I have a hi-fi system that I kind of want the house to be built around. So Williams is like putting speakers in the ceilings and he's doing all this stuff. He just tailors the house perfectly to Frank Sinatra. Mm -hmm. So that was the push button house. Then he did Saks Fifth Avenue and the MCA building. He did the Los Angeles County Courthouse, the grave of the Unknown Sailor in Pearl Harbor, oh, wow. the U.S. Naval Station, the 28th Street YMCA, which still exists. It just underwent a pretty extensive renovation, but they were able to save the Paul Williams portion and then like okay. added a modern portion onto it. It's gorgeous. The Arrowhead Springs Hotel, the first AME church. It's also like where him and his wife got married. Oh. Yeah. So he designed, he like, when they were like, we want to get a new church, he designed it for him. The Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Building, the J, I don't know if it's Paley or Pally House. There's a pool that it's called the Zodiac Pool. Mm. That if you've seen it, you're like, I know that pool. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. that. That's his design. Yeah. Hilarious. No, I've, I've totally seen that Zodiac Pool. Like, yeah. I've I mean, it, pictures of that. When I saw it, I was like, I know this pool. Like, I've seen this pool. I thought it was part of a hotel. Yeah. I didn't realize that it was somebody's fucking home. Yeah, I um, think if, I didn't think much about it, but I probably would have thought it was part of a hotel too. 
Yeah. The La Concha Motel in Nevada, which no longer exists, but they took the lobby structure, which is this cool... Okay, so, you know, you were talking about the sort of space age Mm -hmm. Jetsons kind of mid-century modern. There's actually a word for that type of architecture. It's called Googie architecture. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's all over Los Angeles, probably all over Las Vegas and Nevada as well. But the La Concha Motel lobby was built in that style as well. When the motel closed, they disassembled the lobby and transported it. And it is now the lobby for the Neon Museum in Las Vegas. The perfect place for that museum. Yeah, exactly. He also designed that sort of retro futuristic, again, Googie styled theme building at LAX. So the weird like spaceship Jetson kind of looking right. structure. Oddly enough, the Al Jolson Memorial. Mm, yeah. We're not going to get into it too much other than to say Al Jolson, because because I was like, wait, what? <laughs> when yeah. I saw that. Because if you don't know, Al Jolson was famous for doing blackface. Mm-hmm. And he is somebody who performed in blackface for a long, 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 long time. He also took music that had African-American roots and sort of, I don't want to say whitewash because Al Jolson was, was Jewish, but he mm-hmm. sort of polished it up, I guess. I don't know how right. to say that, but to present to white audiences. In the little bit, the teeniest, tiniest bit of digging that I did to this, I can see like, you know, again, talking about deciding the levels of problematic that you're okay with. Mm-hmm. Al Jolson, his story is deeply, deeply complicated yeah. because he did all this stuff and apparently was also a huge proponent of civil rights, of like yeah. racial, I mean, it wasn't civil rights at the time, but of, of racial equality. Right. Um, yeah. No, I've, I've read that about him. And I think like there was an era, I, I'm, and I could be totally talking out of my ass, but there was an era where he was actually very like lauded by the black community because of his, yeah. he was like an early proponent of civil rights. But then as time has gone on, his legacy is somewhat tarnished. Like, yeah. With modern sensibilities. Yeah. Rightly um, so. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting story, though, and right. definitely worth looking into. So he also designed for his good friend, entertainer Danny Thomas. Uh, mm. Williams did not make a point of becoming friends with his clients, but Thomas was the exception. We're going to take a quick sidebar to talk about uh, Danny Thomas for one second. Danny Thomas was one of 10 children born to Lebanese immigrant parents. He grew up poor, and when he was struggling early in his career, he made a vow that he would dedicate a shrine to the patron saint of lost causes. During the 1950s, when he'd made it big, Thomas made good on that promise, and he opened St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I, didn't, I mean, I've heard of Danny Thomas, but I didn't know that. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah. Williams, who fervently believed in the organization's mission of treating children regardless of race or religion, designed the hospital in Memphis, Tennessee for free. Nice. Yeah. I've heard stories that he was like, hey, keep this on the down low because I don't want everybody coming to me for free projects. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fair. Yeah. A fun fact about Danny Thomas, his birth name was Amos Muziad Yakub Kairouz. Mm. His daughter, Marlo Thomas, is now the spokesperson for St. Jude's. Oh, yeah. That's okay. Well, yep. that all makes sense now. <laughs> yep. Right. Yeah. Like it was the type of thing where it was just like domino after domino, like uh, yeah. piece by piece was falling into place. And I was just like, oh my God, everything is connected. Yeah. I was, I've 
super seen those commercials. <laughs> 100%. It is yeah. through thick and thin. It has been the, a charity that my mom has religiously donated to. Mm-hmm. Which is just so sweet. Okay, yeah. so Williams also co-designed the first, the first, the first federally funded public housing project as part of FDR's Public Works Administration in 1934, 35. Right, okay. Williams designed Langston Terrace in Washington, D.C. with another Black architect, a man by the name of Hilliard Robinson. In 1941, Williams joins forces with Jewish Austrian-American architect Richard Neutra to design the Pueblo de Rio housing project in South LA. I've heard Williams of him. Is, mm-hmm. Yeah, what, there's. Did you say yeah. Richard Neutra? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I've heard of him. Yeah. yeah, he's he's a he's a pretty big architect from that time period. Williams was quoted as saying, "Expensive homes are my business, and social housing is my hobby." Mm. Like he he did a lot of social housing projects. Which, for anybody who doesn't know, at the time that these things were created, they were affordable housing for middle class families. Right. So he's doing like all of this stuff, but he doesn't have a super identifiable style. He pulls from Georgian, Spanish, Mm -hmm. colonial, Tudor, Monterey colonial, you know, New England colonial, everything. Mm-hmm. I saw somewhere that one of the reasons why he was so popular was because he would he would design for transplants, right? For people who weren't from LA but had moved there and they wanted like a bit of home. Ah. Uh. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So, so if you're talking about people from back east, they're like, I want like brick and I want, you know, and. Well, like you say, he did the like English manor for that Jack Atkin guy. And like. Yeah. So he's not like a Frank Lloyd Wright where he's like so specific in his style that it's almost like. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Precisely. Yes. Um, He does have some elements that managed to sort of find their way into a lot of his designs. One of them was he kind of had a thing for staircases. He would often have these like prominently displayed like sweeping curving, fluid, luxurious staircases. Mm. There was there, and I didn't jot her name down, but there is a woman who somewhat recently did a photo project, uh, a photography project, I think put it into a book of Paul Williams's architectural work Mm. and staircases are in a lot of them because they light really dramatically and they're gorgeous. Windows, loved windows, tall, like floor to ceiling windows. He would like hide little circular octagonal windows, like in nooks and crannies. He was looking for lots of ways to like let that light in. The other thing is that he had a way of integrating exteriors and interiors so that it felt like you had one foot inside, one foot outside. Now, I'm going to make some comparisons between Frank Lloyd Wright and him here a little bit because they were actually contemporaries. Um, And there's a great picture of the two of them together. (laughs) And like Williams is like, he's in his double-breasted suit. His hair is perfect. You know, he's he's got his pocket square, all that. He looks amazing. He looks perfect and modern and of the time. And then Frank Lloyd Wright looks like he's a time traveler from a different century. He's like got this like, I mean, he, it's almost like he's wearing like a, like a frock. It just, it's just, it's the weirdest picture. You need um, to post that on. I will. <laughs> <laughs> I will. If I can find it, I definitely will. Yeah. But talking about Frank Lloyd Wright versus Paul Williams, Frank Lloyd Wright would do this thing where he would blur the line between interior and exterior. Mm-hmm. Paul Williams wasn't doing that. He was 
creating these homes and these layouts that were very fluid. I believe, I saw this in a couple of places, but I believe that he is responsible for the patio. And so like an outdoor, like an outdoor living space, he's kind of responsible for that. And so his living rooms would have lots of French doors that would open and there was a, a, you know, the patio right outside. It was this very like fluid indoor outdoor living space. Okay. He also loved a grand but not overstated entryway. It would be the type of thing Mm -hmm. where like you would walk into a home and your eye would be immediately drawn to one of these staircases that then like swooped up and it would, you know, your eye would be led to this like domed gold gilded ceiling. So it's not like awesome ostentatious but it's right. lovely i feel like you'd see a lot of stuff like that in movies of the time i wonder how much like influence he had on yeah like movie production design that i don't know but that'd be interesting to find out yeah and views he was extremely skilled like he knew how to best situate a home in the hills of los angeles to best make use of like the vistas and the vistas of the city and the surrounding area and all that stuff like he just knew how to settle stuff into the landscape one of the reasons why he didn't have a style was that he had this holistic approach to design and that's what i was saying like he was you know designing every house for the individual Mm -hmm. not to be part of like a portfolio were you gonna say something (laughs) oh well well, just like i don't know i think there's something to be said for that because like i mean i think about even like challenges I've had in my own writing compared to like friends of mine, you know, just comparing my writing. The note I got almost the most from executives and people like that is that, oh, we love your work, but it's just so specific. And what Mm. happened, what I learned, and this is just sort of what I've learned. That was my chair. If you heard that, that was my chair this time. Not a fart. (laughs) (laughs) But what I've learned that I, I think I just have to like come to terms with it and live with it is like, you can be so specific in whatever your creative vision or your style, your aesthetic, is that you kind of just narrow your opportunities down to like a very small sliver (laughs) yeah and i think there's something because i have friends who work in the movie industry who are extremely talented but they're just much more versatile than me you know well but here's it i don't know i i have a lot of respect for that actually because it's not a matter of like oh they don't have a vision or they're not creative it's just they know how to okay this is this type of story i'm telling this is this type of story i'm telling and they can make that adjustment and i i struggle with that more so i guess i don't know i have a lot of respect for that type of creativity i think it's just a different type of creativity absolutely absolutely 100 so yeah so he doesn't have this style and again it's because he has this kind of holistic approach his his whole mo for designing is serving the customer Right. So again, unlike Frank Lloyd Wright, who kind of designed what he designed and was like, either like you either buy into it or you don't. Mm-hmm. Williams was really designing from a, a client centered place. Right. Um, he'd meet with his clients and before he even started doing anything, he would ask them a bunch of questions. It was like, you know, how do you live? Do mm-hmm. you entertain a lot? Are you a morning person or a night person? Do you need quarters for your housekeeper? Do you need mother-in-law quarters? And he would get all of the specifics about these people's lives and then design a home around that life. That's cool. Again, whereas Frank Lloyd Wright sort of built works of art that could be lived in, Mm -hmm. Williams was designing like these beautiful, warm homes, which is why when you were talking about going to the MCA building, you were like, this is so warm. 
warm and inviting. That was deliberate. <laughs> right. Well, and like I would say like of the places I've had meetings in LA, my two favorite places have been the, that Paradigm building and then the HBO building, which they are so different because the HBO building is like super industrial and, you know, mm-hmm. but it's it's like a really cool building. Whereas that Paradigm building, like I said, it was just super welcoming, cozy. Like you could just hang out there. And I know one of like the knocks on Frank Lloyd Wright was like people are like, they're beautiful to look at, but they're not comfortable homes. You know. I mean, they are. It's it's like they're works of art that you could technically live in. Right. You know, and don't get me wrong. I love Frank Lloyd Wright. Like I, yeah. I, I like love his stuff. And I don't know that I would want to. I don't know that right. I would want to live in a Frank Lloyd Wright home. I would do a lot to live in a Paul Williams home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, I would like they're to so gorgeous. visit Frank Lloyd Wright homes. Yeah. <laughs> like. Walk around and look at things. Then you get to go home to your like nice Paul Williams. Home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm not like, you know, on a concrete bed or something. Right. Um, <laughs> okay, so he does all this stuff, right? And he's this incredible architect. He's working for all these, you know, these movie stars. He's doing all this incredible stuff. Where is his legacy? Like, why the hell isn't Paul Williams a household name? Right. I Like I said at the beginning, I'd never heard of him. There's a couple of reasons for this. The first one is that it's LA mm-hmm. and stuff gets torn down all the time. <laughs> because folks want to be able to build a 24,000 square foot home where, you know, a 4,000 square foot um, home that is like historic and historically valuable, that structure sat there. And then they're like, tear it down. I want this like glass and steel monstrosity. (laughs) Like the HBO building. (laughs) Like the HBO building. For instance, Brad Gray of Paramount bulldozed the Sinatra push button house. Oh, Brad. The Atkins house was lost to a fire in 2015 that happened during a renovation. Mm. Oh, I think I think I remember reading about that. That might have been when I was living out there. Mm-hmm. So I kind of remember there was a house in Pasadena that burned down and people were real upset about it. I didn't know anything about it. But. That might have been it. There's a gorgeous scene in the documentary where it shows like six. It's like the Frank Sinatra house and then a bun- like six, five other examples of his work. And it's talking about how, you know, this is happening. And it, they just like kind of get blacked out mm. as as the scene progresses. But it's, it's that kind of, I saw in the doc, they show like a newspaper clipping where it's like Paul Williams house, Paul Williams designed house bulldozed for Zen fusion bungalow or something. It's just infuriating. Yeah, and you're like, oh my God. Dr. Lonnie Bunch, again from the PBS doc, says, quote, it's very easy to be written out of history when you're not present. And that's probably the most succinct and clear explanation of why representation matters. Yes. Because if you're not there, you'll get written out of the history. Right. The second reason is the burning of the Broadway Federal Bank. Okay, Mm. quick history, I promise. In 1946, Paul Williams, along with H.A. Howard, who's a real estate broker, and Dr. H. Claude Hudson, who's a dentist, start the Broadway Federal Savings and Loan Association. At the time, it was damn near impossible for Black folks, many of whom at this time are World War II veterans, Mm -hmm. for them to get loans to buy houses. So the three of them started this bank to change that. When the bank had to move to a larger location, Williams actually designed the new building that ended it being located in South Central LA. Mm-hmm. Um, Williams understood that the survival of the Black community depended on a home ownership. And again, that's generational wealth and exactly. you know that kind of yeah. stuff. Case study house number 
22, which is also known as the Stahl House, is an icon of modern architecture in LA and would not have been built without a construction loan from Broadway Federal. I know you know this house. It is a house where the living room is floor, like it's not walls. It's not like there are windows. The walls are windows and the living room juts out over a cliff. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. I've seen pictures of it. Yeah. Yeah. There is a famous Julius Shulman photo uh, of two women. It's very 1950s and they're like sitting in the living room and you can see like this panoramic view of the city of Los Angeles and half of the view is through the glass walls of this living room. That house would not exist if it wasn't for the Broadway Federal Savings and Loan. So doing some cool stuff. Okay, so back to the Lost Legacy. Mm -hmm. um, Williams stored his archival papers at Broadway Federal. Um, oh. These were papers that included office records, correspondence between Williams and other designers, his employees, subcontractors. They listed like the amount of money that people were paid, information on joint ventures, the amount of money that Williams brought in for projects, all of that stuff. Yeah. At 3.15 p.m. on April 29th, 1992, the four police officers who beat Rodney King were acquitted and the city erupted. In oh. the ensuing chaos that lasted five days, the Broadway Federal Savings and Loan, a 65-year-old African-American business, burnt to the ground, taking Williams' archival papers along with it. Oh. Because of this, there is no definitive record of everything Williams did. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That sucks. Yeah. So yeah. part of the reason why it's like, you know, the dude from Paramount, like, I think basically, let me, let me start that over. I think what essentially happened is that people didn't know they were living in Paul Williams homes. Mm -hmm. They probably didn't really know who Paul Williams was either. And so they were like, whatever, it's just this old house, tear it down. Yeah. Silver lining to this story though, is that William's granddaughter, Karen, who I mentioned before, had recently removed all of the creative paperwork. So okay. all of his drafting, his drawings, his blueprints, the photographs, all of that survived. Okay, good. Paul Williams retired in 1973. In 1980, he passed away at the age of 85. His wife survived him for another 16 years. She passed away at the age of 100. Wow. I mean, my grandpa made it to 102, so. Yeah. <laughs> in <laughs> good, 2000, for <laughs> good, good for you, Della. In 2015, a monument to Williams was dedicated at the Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Building as part of its renovation. Mm -hmm. In 2017, 37 years after his death, Williams was awarded the gold medal from the American Institute of Architects. In his letter of support for Williams's gold medal, William J. Bates said, quote, our profession desperately needs more architects like Paul Williams. His pioneering career has encouraged others to cross a chasm of historic biases. His recognition demonstrates a significant shift in the equity of the profession and the Institute. To this day, only 2% of American architects are black. And mm. that is the story of Paul Williams, architect to the stars. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm glad it sounds like some of his stuff has survived. Like it hasn't yeah. all been torn down or burned down. But Yeah. They think that he ultimately, within Los Angeles, there's actually two Paul Williams buildings in El Paso. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, road, road trip. trip. <laughs> <laughs> right? But they actually go. pandemic road trip. <laughs> <laughs> they actually are like coast to coast. So he wasn't, you know, and I mentioned like he had the Pearl Harbor thing in mm -hmm. Hawaii, like because he also worked as a, as an architectural engineer for the U.S. Navy. So he's got a lot of stuff there, but it is believed that within L.A., he had done 
oh, somewhere in the ballpark of 3,000 wow. designs. There is no current record as to how many of those still exist. Well, and it's probably like I'm just thinking about like the La Canada Flint Ridge area. Like, mm-hmm. It's probably a lot of homes that are like sort of we would think like you would drive by it and you'd be like, oh, that's a cool old house. But it's not some like grand palatial mansion. It's just like a family home, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. like that's where like a lot of that stuff probably like you said, people don't even know they're living in this like historic. Yeah. And there are people there's a great story in the documentary. Go watch the PBS. You can go to PBS.com. Just search for Paul Williams. And it's it's like 56 minutes long. It's a great movie about him. But there's a story in there about this woman who knows that like the house next door to hers, for some reason, she knows it's a Paul Williams home. And she's like, she's at home one day and she starts hearing sledgehammers and she runs out and she sees a construction crew and they're like beginning to tear down the house. And she's like, stop, 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 stop. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And a letter had been sent probably by like a conservation group had been sent to the homeowner that was like, Hey, this is a Paul Williams home. Like we're looking to get this on the registry. Don't fucking touch it. Mm -hmm. So the woman runs out and she's like, stop, stop, stop. You can't do that. And the construction crew is like, listen, lady, like I get what you're saying, but our boss has told us that we need to do this. Mm-hmm. So if you want us to stop, you're going to have to call the cops. So she was like, then I will. Um, yeah. And I think she did. And she got like nice. the demolition halted. A cool thing about it too, is that as these groups are finding the homes, the homes are being renovated because a lot of them have fallen into like complete disrepair. Right. They talk about the YMCA and how the building had sort of sat abandoned for 20 years. And mm-hmm. so when they went in, they really had to like refurbish it. But what these nonprofits will do is they'll refurbish and renovate the homes back to like according to the original plans. And then they will open the homes to the public for tours. And from that, they take the proceeds to do that, to work on the next home and oh, so that's on cool. and so forth. Yeah. There's also a great story about a couple who moved into one of his homes and they found the original blueprints in a cabinet. Mm. And they were like, Joink, like, (laughs) and they talk like they say that they really like when they were working on renovating the house because again it had fallen into disrepair that they were really going like coming from a place of like what would Paul do? So Mm. every design choice went back to the blueprints to be like, how do we stay? You know, like there's a couple of we need to what's the word I'm thinking of? Like modern, modern, modernize. Wow, that that was my brain was like. It powered down on the, hamst- on the-, the hamster went to sleep it's- again. <laughs> the hamster like ran off of the wheel and went in a different direction on that one. But things where they need to modernize, you know, probably like electrical components right. and stuff like that. But because they have the blueprints, they're sort of able to stay very, very true to what mm-hmm. the original design and the original vision of the house was. This is like 100% been a Cliff's Notes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Version of a fascinating man with a fascinating story. So I'm going to encourage our listeners to go out and learn more about him. You can listen to the 99% Invisible podcast. And I think it's called Architect to the Stars. It was um, an episode that came out in April of 2017. Watch the doc on PBS. And the LA Times and Architectural Digest also has great, great info. There was an article on NPR that came out in 2012. It was talking about Paul Williams. And at one point they go, actor and philanthropist Bill Cosby and I was like ew And I was like, right close, that from close the window, close window, close window. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Whew. 
So that's yeah. a story about Paul Williams. One thing I love about that story is it does sound sort of quintessentially LA in the sense, I mean, you've been to LA with me, like mm-hmm. driving around LA, it is the most, like the architectural styles are so haphazard, just kind of thrown together. And you can just yep. tell it's like, everyone's just like, oh, I'm going to put up what I want here. And I'm going to put yeah. up, what, and, you know, but that's one of the things I love about LA. Cause like you go to a city like Boston, Boston's very Boston looking. It's all brownstones and like mm-hmm. colonial buildings and brick mm-hmm. and you know, but you go to LA and it's just kind of everything. It's just kind of like, and, and a lot of it is like real janky. And like, like, have you heard the stories? If you, this is a total sidebar, but have you read the stories about how like post Hugh Hefner's death, may he rest in peace? <laughs> they're checking out the the Playboy Mansion, trying to figure out what to do with it. And apparently it's just like gross in there. And like everything smells yeah. like mold. And like, yeah. 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 But that's like um, a lot of LA is kind of like that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think, you know, which is why, like, again, you know, when I was saying the thing about the 24,000 square foot monstrosity, that's actually a (laughs) bit of a, of a quote from the PBS doc. There's a, who is it? I'm not remembering who it was, but he's like, you know, they tore down this, they tore down this home so they could put up this monstrosity. And he's like, I mean, I don't want to say that it's a monstrosity, but they want to put a 24,000 square foot home on a lot where mm. a 4,000 square foot home yeah. lived, you know? And it's like, well, yeah. And that's, that's like, I'm certain that there is a lot of stuff. And when you look, especially when you start getting into some of the mid-century modern stuff, mm-hmm. like all of the, like the Spanish mission style homes and the Tudor style stuff. And I'll send you pictures. I won't probably be able to post all of them on social media, but I'll send you some of the pictures. I would bet dollars to donuts that you'll see these pictures and you'll be like, I know that house. Like I mm-hmm. recognize that house and it's a Paul Williams house. Oh, okay. Um, cool. But a lot of them were mid-century ranch style homes, which mm-hmm. architecturally speaking are not the most impressive from the outside. Right. So I get that somebody was like, I like this lot, but I want mm-hmm. this big, like super modern well, glass steel thing. And so they tore down this piece of history. I mean, there's also a thing in LA, like you drive, drive around the Hollywood Hills where it's just like, you can tell there's just really no city planning out there because it's just let's just shove as much shit on these steep cliffs as possible and you're driving up these windy roads and there's like driveways literally backing out onto like a main like you mm-hmm. drive down like Mulholland Drive it's like people's driveways just back out onto Mulholland Drive like which yeah. is really dangerous yeah but it's just like because people are just throwing shit up wherever the fuck they can you know i think there's that also just an interesting tidbit that didn't make it into the story when paul williams was kind of trying to get noticed and was kind of trying to earn a name for himself in 1921 he joined la's first city planning commission Mm. and i kind of feel like it was the last one from what i've seen (laughs) like they were like this is hard screw this you put it up wherever i mean one of my favorite slash most frustrating things about LA is you'll be like driving and you're like looking for the freeway entrance mm-hmm. and it like the entrance will look like someone's driveway you know like you're approaching it you're like where's the fucking entrance and then you go by it you're like oh fuck there it was well and I remember when we behind were behind a house like covered in like trees or something like, I remember we were trying to get out to Santa Clarita and you were like, here we go. And we like drove into a building and you were like, dang it. And I was like, how? And I was like, what the fuck, Scotty? Like I could, I could tell you that this wasn't the entrance to the freeway, but when you finally found it, it looked identical to that. So I was like, oh, that's how that happened. Yeah, That's like a very unique to LA thing. I found. Yeah. Because they also like the signs are all like covered in like leaves and stuff. Like no one's ever trimming the trees. Like it's just this crazy city where like it's sort of beautiful and feels like Mad Max post-apocalyptic all at the same time. Yeah. I don't think it was because of this, but somewhere along the way, 
Oh, oh, there's a new series or a new movie on HBO. I think that's called, it's not called Almost Famous. It's called Fake Famous, something oh, like okay. that. Yeah, I think and it's like a it. documentary where they kind of basically go and they take three people who want to be like influencers. Mm. And I think they sort of go through the experiment of getting them to influencer level. Mm-hmm. Um, but it starts with that fucking pink building that everybody goes and takes pictures at. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's a pink building and people, <laughs> I did not know this, people take Instagram vacations. So when they're doing this, they show two women who came from somewhere, I think somewhere in the UK, who literally came, they bought tickets, they did the whole damn thing to come and take that fucking picture in front of that fucking pink wall. That everyone That's takes their, a picture in front of. Mm-hmm. And that was the sole purpose of their visit. That's insanity. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm angry about that. I know you are. (laughs) Um, It's really funny. Like, you know, yes, I have this sort of like fascination and curiosity about old LA and old Hollywood. And I'm like super interested in it. And at the same time, I'm also just interested in current LA. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's funny to see how I'm drawn to shows that are based in LA versus shows that are based in Mm -hmm. New York or Chicago or anything like that. Like there's just something about LA right now. It could also be the fact that I have like some of my most favorite, favorite people in the world live in LA or in the surrounding area. And so I'm like, I have like an emotional tie Mm -hmm. to that in some way. But yeah, if you, if you were like, Hey, do you want to live in a brownstone on the Upper East Side of Manhattan? Or do you want to live in a teeny tiny apartment from the night that was built in the 1920s in LA I'd be like 1920s LA yeah (laughs) thank you but you do I get a parking spot yeah (laughs) I mean you know from what you when we went out there I guess was that two years ago a year and a half ago whenever that was don't you dare (laughs) yeah it was it was oh my god it was a year and a half ago it was August of 2019 I mean I'm just writing off 2020 so it's like that (laughs) well then say it was six months ago six months ago when (laughs) we went to LA <laughs> um, like I remember your reaction because I think you had said you hadn't been there in a long time. And I've been so, there once when I was at like 12 or 13. Yeah. And like you were, I just remember you being like simultaneously like excited and giddy about everything and also just extremely frustrated with everything. And I'm like, welcome to LA. Yes. Like, that's a, the LA experience. Yes. And I should, I should actually amend my statement. It would be full expense paid trip to New York or full expense paid trip to Los Angeles. And yeah. I'd be like, Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> I just, I will never, ever forget the day that we got stuck in that insane traffic. We On were trying sunset. to go to the bar. Yeah. <laughs> we were trying to go meet some friends at the bar. And we were in the car for just so long. And by the time we finally got there, we make our way upstairs to that. Do you remember what the bar was? No, but it was on Sunset. And it was yeah. way over, way over in Hollywood. Like, want to say towards, we'd have to ask our friends, but I want to say towards like Highland Avenue or something. We were coming from Santa Monica. So if anyone can imagine driving Sunset from Santa Monica to like sunset and Highland at rush hour. Like it was, it was I, a bad move. I planned that so terribly <laughs> and I, I should have known better. I lived out there, but I just, I guess I forgot I'm in that car for like an hour and a fucking half. Like it was ridiculous. We were, it, it was like, Oh I could just my God. feel the smoke boiling out of your ears as we were like inching <laughs> forward. <laughs> 
And it yeah. wasn't like, I was like, oh my God, Scotty, like you did this. And it wasn't, I wasn't even worried about being late. I was just like, why are there so many people? No, yeah, here? exactly. Like, <laughs> um, the name of the bar was Mama Shelter. Mama Shelter. So mm-hmm. what's the address? I, okay. Pop quiz. I didn't know you were going to ask me for the address. Because I want to know where it is. I'll, I'll cut some of this out. It just says Central Hollywood, uh, 6500 Selma Avenue. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, um, that's pretty far. That's pretty far to the east from Santa Monica. Because I remember being like, oh, do you want to see Sunset Strip? Not looking at the clock and realizing what time of day it was. And then once we got into it, I was like, I've made a terrible choice. We've made a terrible choice. But I will never forget, like, we finally get there. We finally find a parking spot. We get into the damn place. And it's a rooftop bar that we're going to. And there's, like, Instagram influencers all around us. People (laughs) trying to take pictures. And I'm, like, sweaty. And I'm in, like, a tank top and shorts. I'm like, get the fuck out of my face. Um, We finally make get out of the elevator and we sort of like tumble out of the elevator onto the rooftop bar and the friend that we were staying with sees us and just goes ah yep now you know now (laughs) you know i know that look and i was just like oh my god (laughs) but it was also just a beautiful experience because we were meeting friends there and they like immediately had drinks for the two of us that they were just like drink this now yeah Yeah, it was needed those drinks (laughs) drinks real bad (laughs) yeah so all of that to say all my love to LA, even though I know that it's uh, an impossible town and yeah, it's an impossible machine that chews people up and spits them out on the yeah. daily. I mean, I just think of like LA as just like the most glorious dumpster fire. And like, you have to kind of love it. If you have any connection to it or, you know, I've lived out there, I have connections to the movie industry and like, I wouldn't particularly want to live there again, but I do like, I have a lot of love in my heart for LA. It's, yeah. it's one of the craziest cities you could ever live in. Yeah. It's uh, like, you know, we talk about making a lot of road trips. You know, we just said we were going to go to El Paso last week. We talked about going up to Denver to go to Syrup, (laughs) (laughs) making our way to Tucson to eat a chimichanga and all that stuff. And all of that to say, like, there is the cells in my body know that the second it is safe to travel again, I'm going to be like, can we go to LA? Yeah. I want to go to LA. Oh, I want to go. We need, we need to make a trip. We'll we'll plan that soon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And th- yeah, well, okay, we'll talk about this offline. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> cool. I love that story. Yeah. Yay! So, not only is it Black History Month, it is also Women in Horror Month, which Ooh. somewhat less officially probably. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. Well, right. okay. <laughs> but right. this is this is a month where all of us in the horror community are celebrating women in horror, specifically female horror authors. So, Yay. I'm going to go a little bit through the history of some of my favorite horror writers. So, I do I do want to go a little bit back. I'm I'm going to try not to spend too much time on this, but I want to go back to kind of the beginnings of the genre so my sources for this before i get started wikipedia of course also an article from this is horror which is one of my favorite website slash podcasting companies slash publishing companies they have an article called considering the legacy of women writers in horror fiction by vh leslie that's from 2013 a little bit from stephen king's dance macabre which is Mm. his 1981 kind of treatise on the horror genre up to that point (laughs) Okay. And then a couple of views from a guy named John Langan, who is also a very, very well-respected horror writer. Um, yeah, I was like, why do I know that name? He, well, I, because I post about him probably, mm-hmm. but he's he wrote a novel called The Fisherman, which is just, if you're a horror fan and you haven't read it, you need to like drop everything and read that book. But he, yeah, maybe finish the podcast. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Again, it's just a clank of my headphones <laughs> dropping to the ground. <laughs> 
<laughs> but he wrote a couple reviews. One of She Said Destroy by Nadia Bulkin. That's from Locust Magazine, March 2018. And then also a review of Jim Files Experimental Film, which mm. is a novel. That's also Locust Magazine. That's from 2015. And then uh, actually, I never mind. I'm going to skip this because I don't. Oh, no, I did use this. Oh, <laughs> I'll cut this one. That out. sucks when you list the source <laughs> and then you're like, I actually I for- from that no, actually, I, I think I used one quote from this. It's okay. a review of a book by a writer named Gwendolyn Keist. Um, her book is called And Her Smile Will Untether the Universe. Ooh. One of my favorite titles of all time. I'll talk a little bit about that book here in a little bit. I want that on my on my headstone. Yeah, I want that on like a t-shirt or something. That would just wear it all the time. <laughs> okay, obviously I'm more dedicated to the quote <laughs> yeah, than you are. Probably. <laughs> I'm gonna get it tattooed on my face. <laughs> <laughs> but we do need to talk about just the history of women in the horror genre and how women really kind of built the horror genre. So I could not find this stat anywhere. So I could be completely, I could have dreamed this. I could have okay. like, like this could be from an alternate dimension. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But you could be having a recovered memory. Could be a recovered memory. Like one of those fake satanic panic recovered memories. Like okay. who knows? But like, I could have sworn a couple years ago, I read an article basically talking about how like, you know, people think about horror fiction horror movies etc as being like a genre for the boys like it's a Mm. boy genre Mm -hmm. like but in fact and i'm gonna i'm gonna quote these stats which again i may be making up but i could have sworn i read this Mm -hmm. they did some sort of polling something like 55 percent of the readership for horror fiction is women versus i think it's about 50 percent for fantasy fiction and Uh like 30 percent for science fiction okay like women are deeply entrenched in the horror genre have been from the start and i can say anecdotally when i went to the world horror convention in 2000 uh so many of the people there both authors and fans were women i'm sort of involved with the horror bookstagram community Mm -hmm. a lot of women involved with that so it's you know people really have like there's been a real knock on sci-fi in the last few years where there's a lot of misogyny Mm. A lot of just like gatekeeping. It's kind of like mm. gamer gatey type gatekeeping, mm-hmm. trying to keep women out. But the horror genre, now I know there are, I mean, we talked about some of this last year. There have been some scandals within the horror world too about piece of shit dudes being pieces of shit to women. Um, yes. Certainly not saying the horror genre is immune to this. But at least in my experience of just kind of anecdotally what I observe, it just seems like the horror world has been very open, welcoming Mm. to women, both as writers and fans, in a way that some of the other genres maybe are less so. And I think- That's surprising. I have to say, that's surprising. Well, I think the reason why is because, Mm -hmm. well, there's a couple things. Like think about the true crime and mystery readership. Yeah. I think there's a lot of crossover there. And Mm -hmm. you know, true crime and mystery fiction, like, I mean, I would, I don't know a stat, I'm going to make this up, but- like I would guess it's probably like 70 to 80% of the readers are women. You know, it's <laughs> you're like, I don't have actual facts to base this, so I'm just gonna pull hey, roughly is... 87% of <laughs> 87.73. I mean, this is the world we live in now where we get to make up our own facts. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of crossover there. Um, uh-huh. but I also think a big part of it is that the genre was literally built by women because. When you talk about horror fiction, you have to talk about gothic fiction. 
That's where it starts. So here's a quote. This is from this VH Leslie article, considering the legacy of women writers in horror fiction. She says, the emergence of the Gothic in the late 18th century was firmly rooted in a feminist past. Most of these writers were women and the intended audience was also female with many novels appearing serialized in ladies' magazines. Early Gothic texts were dismissed with the same derision as chiclet books today Mm. as quote, sofa companions, not worthy of serious literary merit. Yet storylines focusing on young female protagonists battling the supernatural and uncanny, as well as fighting forbidden desires and appetites, were remarkably popular and provided a much-needed escapism for many women trapped by social conventions. Well, because what else were the fuck were they doing at that time? Yeah, well, exactly. But I think when you think about the horror genre, the horror is the most probably derided genre of fiction mm-hmm. out there. You know, it's people always like poo-pooing it, turning their nose up at it, you know, sometimes trying to yeah. ban it, you know. And I think you could say like, oh, it's because it's violent and it's gory and all this, whatever. I think a lot of it frankly, is because of, you know, gatekeeping, because there are so many women involved okay. that I think the male literary establishment just refused mm. up to this day, refuses to take it seriously. So let's talk a little bit about some of these gothic female writers. Okay. I'm going to be 100% honest. I haven't read a lot of this stuff because like, I mean, we're talking like 17th, early 18th, 17th mm. century, early 1800s you know like uh-huh. it's just, I mean you talked about it a bit with your Sleepy Hollow story it's just like that pro style it's it's yeah. a lot it's, it's a, lot. a lot but they do need to be talked about so of course okay. there's Mary Shelley and we mm-hmm. don't need to talk too much about her because go back to episode one the Bronte sisters or mm-hmm. who came a little later they're often sort of lumped in with the gothic tradition and then you have a woman named clara reeve she published a very famous gothic novel called the old english baron in 1777 okay and then i want to talk about anne radcliffe who's okay. most famous for her novel the mysteries of adolfo from 1794 okay which is kind of put up there as like one of the prototypical kind of archetypal early Gothic novels, along with a book called The Monk, which was written by a guy named Matthew Lewis. It's kind of considered like these are the books that sort of established the Gothic tradition Mm -hmm. as being somewhat separate from the Romantic literature tradition. Okay. So Anne Radcliffe, uh, she lived 1764 to 1823. She was born Anne Ward in London to a haberdasher who later moved the family to Bath to manage a china shop. Hmm. Later on, she married a journalist named William Radcliffe who co-owned and edited the English Chronicle, which was like a three times a week evening newspaper. Okay. And what's cool reading about Anne Radcliffe and her relationship with her husband, William, is it sounds like they had this really great supportive, loving relationship. And I think she said after he died, I didn't write the quote down, but it was something like he was my closest friend and closest relative or something i don't know why i mean probably i mean maybe because like you know i want to be i was about to be like because marriage is horrible that's not what i mean but because we know how like we know the history of how a lot of these unions were were made and stuff and it's it's so clear as we you know do these do these stories and stuff that people were not marrying for how rare it was to marry for love Mm -hmm. that Every time I hear about an old timey relationship where they're like, no, they honestly just loved the they crap loved, out of each other. They loved each other. And Ugh. it was a childless for marriage, them. Okay. interestingly. They didn't have kids, but they apparently had this very happy marriage. And so he would go work at the English Chronicle. He was, like I said, he was a journalist and an editor. He would come mm-hmm. home and then she would read her writing to him. She'd be like, this is what I was doing today. And she would read her stuff to him. And I think he was very supportive, very encouraging. So oh she God. started 
she started publishing and she became so popular that she ended up being essentially the breadwinner of the family. Uh, She was making the money. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately made enough money from her books. And she only published in her lifetime five novels, but they were so popular and made so much money that they were able to travel and do all of this stuff. Mm. Unfortunately, over time, she became reclusive. And she ended up remaining secluded for 26 years before her death. Um, She stopped publishing and then just kind of retreated from public view. This sparked a bunch of rumors that because of the subject matter of her writing, she went insane. Guys. Uh, Yeah. And I'm going to get to a little (laughs) bit more of this when we talk about Charlotte Perkins Gilman here in a second. But this is the era of the hysterical woman, right? So, of course, this was the rumor. Okay. Real fast, I have a question. Yeah. Do we know if they were childless because they were unable to have children or was that by choice? I couldn't find anything that said for sure. I'm Mm. going to guess because they couldn't, but I don't know. I don't know that. Like, I wonder if you were even allowed, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, To be like, we don't want kids. Yeah. If you'd be burned at the stake. I'm just thinking like back then, I don't know what birth control practices were back then. There was plenty of birth control. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, even if it's as like rudimentary as like pulling out, but you can still do it. I would just think if you're married this long with like 1700s birth control methods and you don't have a kid, it's probably because someone there was some infertility issues or something somewhere but mm-hmm. i don't know i'm, I'm just mm-hmm. speculating mm-hmm. so her first novel was from 1789 it was the castles of athlin and dunbane and then 1790 she published a sicilian romance mm-hmm. 1791 the romance of the forest and then of course 1794 her most famous book the mysteries of adolfo basically a story from what i re- again i haven't read it full disclosure about an orphaned young woman named emily who lives in this gloomy french castle and her parents die of illnesses um and then she has to deal with like a lot of family intrigue while supposedly supernatural occurrences are happening okay it was later parodied by jane austen actually in her novel northinger abbey parodied Um, yeah so (laughs) i mean it's apparently northinger abbey is essentially a parody of the mysteries of adolfo and i guess it's like referred to a lot the i think the main character in northinger abbey is reading mysteries of adolfo and then she starts like kind of imagining her world being sort of like it you know okay So this is what it says. Uh, This is a quote. This is also from V.H. Leslie. It says, uh, Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey from 1817 is an excellent parody about the dangers of women reading too many gothic stories. Austen's young and impressionable heroine, Catherine Moreland, having read too many, quote, horrid books, conjures monsters of her own making and gives in to her feminine curiosity and unearthing Northanger's secrets. However, it is not the supernatural that haunts Northanger, as Catherine supposes, but a man-made unhappiness. Austen's novel ridicules the fact many believe women cannot separate fact from fiction okay too easily influenced too impressionable and far too delicate for horror um and then she continues she says and it wasn't (laughs) just women reading horror that was a problem male critics of the time were also concerned about the dangers of women writing the fact that early gothic fiction could be seen to encode anxieties about patriarchy and male control meant that many women writers were aligned with feminist figures such as mary wollstonecraft who, of course, was the mother of Mary Shelley. Oh, okay, okay. So after Mysteries of Adolfo, she went on to publish The Italian in 1797, and then Gaston de Blondeville 
was published in 1826 after her death. Now, what was interesting about her stuff, she was a very popular writer, but she was known for, like, basically her books were all sort of structured around the Scooby-Doo ending. Because it was all, like, supernatural, creepy, that was always then given this rational explanation at the end. Okay. Which apparently pissed off a lot of the critics and readers, because they were like, oh, man, I wanted (laughs) ghosts. I wanted ghosts, and instead you gave me the groundskeeper. Man. It wasn't for meddling kids. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But so that's Anne Radcliffe. Very important. I really should try to read Mysteries of Adolfo, but like I said, that type of writing is just a lot. It's just the time period. It's, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Now let's move on to the late 19th century and talk about Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Okay, I'm ready. So this is also a quote from that V.H. Leslie. Uh, She says, The connections between horror and feminism were perhaps more pronounced at the end of the 19th century with women writers adopting the short story as their weapon of choice to bring about social change. The roots of the horrors that concerned these, quote, new women were marriage, motherhood, and female health, with particular focus on hysteria. The short story was an apt form to express their ideas succinctly to reach a wide readership, with their work appearing in avant-garde magazines like The Yellow Book and The Savoy. Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper is perhaps the most famous example from this fruitful period. So I'll get to talking about The Yellow Wallpaper here in a second, which is a little bit about Charlotte Perkins Gilman's life. Mm-hmm. She's an American writer. She was born 1860 in Hartford, Connecticut. Now, one thing that's interesting, I couldn't find a lot of details on this. I mean, I'm sure they're out there. I just uh, didn't have time to look it all up. But her <laughs> father apparently abandoned the family when she was a child so sort of like stephen king yeah it was like there's a theme there yeah this of course plunged the family into poverty because unlike stephen king's mom at this time her mother was really not able to work yeah so they really had to rely on the generosity of friends and family Mm -hmm. specifically members of her father's family the one who took off um including his aunt harriet beecher stowe hey who was of course the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah, okay. Now, Charlotte was mostly raised in Providence, Rhode Island, same as Lovecraft. Uh, A little bit earlier, I think, than Lovecraft. Her mother apparently was cold and unaffectionate and discouraged the children to form close friendships with anybody because she didn't want her kids to be hurt the way she had been. And she was even cold and unaffectionate to her children, except Charlotte says when her mother thought they were asleep, she would come in and, like, cuddle them and stuff. But when they were awake show any affection it's very strange yeah her mother also forbade her children i think she had an older brother forbade the children from reading fiction because thought it was like decadent or whatever you know period mm. puritan new england whatever you know worst 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 thing you can do yeah. i think I'm, well hold on <laughs> there are obviously yeah there's obviously way worse things that you can do to a child but in terms of encouraging the habit of reading mm-hmm. trying to control the type of books that your children read is a bad move yeah, i'm not a parent but i am unequivocally making that statement yeah no i i agree this is going back to the stephen king story it's one thing i appreciate about his mother where she'd be like yeah it's trash <laughs> but whatever here read it yep sounds like charlotte perkins Gilman's mother she could have been like i want to read this shakespeare play she'd be like mm, it's decadent <laughs> you know like that's trash yeah and yeah and i agree with you i think you know all you do there is you convince kids that reading sucks and you're stifling their imagination and like that's among the worst things you can do to a child it's bad yeah but interestingly her father her absent father 
had been a lover of literature and he actually mm. contacted her later. Mm-hmm. And this is where I wasn't able to find a lot of details on like what the relationship was with the father because he left the family, but apparently there was contact later and he gave her a list of books that he thought she would enjoy. Huh. Um, she was also sneaking off to the public library to like read a, on ancient civilizations and stuff without telling her mother. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So she married her first husband, and I did not write his name down because he sounded like a dick. Okay. Um, <laughs> so let him be forgotten. Exactly. To history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I did that on purpose, probably. Nice. Um, but so she married her first husband, had a child, and then was struck with severe postpartum depression. Mm. Um, this then earned her the label of an hysterical woman. Because women's depression, postpartum depression, these things were not taken seriously at the time. Yeah. They're seen as evidence of the female weakness, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. This, of course, pops up in the yellow wallpaper. Okay. Why do I know that? Why do I know that title? Because it's it's one of the <clears throat> best short stories ever written. It's it's taught a lot in like high school classes and stuff. So you might have read okay. it at some point. I don't think so. Okay, continue. So she ended up like taken off from her husband and ended up moving to California to stay with a friend, separated from her husband and actually divorced him in 1894, which you got to wow. think 1894, that's a big deal. Yeah. So let's talk about the yellow wallpaper because okay. this, I just reread it this weekend, mm-hmm. you know, in preparation for this. It'd been a little while since I'd read it. I've read it several times. I mean, it is a goddamn perfect short story. Wow. It is so fucking good. It was published in 1890. And it's composed as like a series of like journal entries from this okay. kind of unnamed woman narrator mm-hmm. who she's been struck with some sort of nervous depression as her mm. husband calls it so he moves them to this <clears throat> like old mansion for the summer okay they set up their bedroom in the upstairs nursery and her husband who's this physician his way of treating her of her depression is he forbids her from working writing really doing it he's just like rest just stay in this room and rest and he just keeps her in this room and so as the journal entries go mm-hmm. she basically becomes obsessed with the wallpaper in the nursery okay she describes as being this like sickly yellow color mm-hmm. she also interestingly describes it having a yellow smell which makes me like think back to a couple weeks ago I was like is this like a description of synesthesia interesting i don't know but as time goes on she starts seeing these disturbing patterns in the wallpaper mm. Quote, like an interminable string of toadstools budding and sprouting in endless convolutions. The wallpaper also leaves like yellow smears on the skin or clothes of anyone who touch it. And then over time, she thinks as she's looking at this wallpaper, because she's stuck in this room, Mm -hmm. it seems the wallpaper starts to mutate. And then she starts seeing the figure of a woman behind the wallpaper, like pacing the room. Ooh. And then I don't want to say any more than that, because then it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. But it's so fucking good. It's one of the most influential short stories of all time. I always say when people ask me, oh, what's your favorite short story? I always say Richard Matheson's Born of Man and Woman, Mm -hmm. which is from the 1950s, which is also a perfect short story. Story. But having reread the yellow wallpaper, I was just like, I had forgotten how fucking good this is. I think this might be the greatest horror short story ever Ooh, written. Okay. It was also a huge influence on H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> and Lovecraft often talked about like his admiration for Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Okay, let's move on to the 20th century. Okay. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about them, but they got to be mentioned. Of course, there's Mm -hmm. Shirley Jackson. Mm -hmm. Anyone who is a horror fan should know who Shirley Jackson is. Anyone who has Netflix should know who Shirley Jackson is, frankly, at this point, because Mm -hmm. she is, of course, most famous for what I think is probably the greatest horror novel ever written, which is The Haunting of Hill House. came out in 1959. 
Mm-hmm. I just want to read the opening paragraph of The Haunting of Hill House because it's okay. largely considered basically the greatest opening to any horror novel ever written. And if you've watched this show, I think they quoted on the show. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and catydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. Um, Nice. That just always gives me goosebumps when I read that. I have two tattoos on my Mm -hmm. arms. I have a Stephen King quote on one arm and a Clive Barker quote on another. Mm -hmm. Uh, My next tattoo is probably going to be, and whatever walked there walked alone, tattooed. Mm somewhere on my body it's probably my tramp favorite. stamp tramp stamp right across my butthole that is not a tramp stamp <laughs> that's another kind of stamp <laughs> oh my god uh, yeah so haunting of hill house i'm not going to talk a lot about it because i want to talk a little bit more about writers that people maybe don't know as well but you have to read haunting mm-hmm. of hill house if you haven't of course okay. Shirley jackson's also known for a novel called the sundial which is i would say more like a gothic family drama but it has okay. elements of horror and then novel called we have always lived in the castle which is probably equally as good of a book as haunting of hill house but i would say it's less horror and of course she's known for her short story the lottery which is another oh, perfect right. short story like absolutely perfect short story again need to mention her not going to talk a lot about her Anne rice mm-hmm. Anne rice you know she basically started around the same time as stephen king and the two of them together were like the pillars of popular horror fiction Mm. The main thing I want to say about Anne Rice, because I think most people know about her and what she's written, but I think Anne Rice gets a bad rap. I think people talk a lot of shit about her. They kind of like talk about Interview with the Vampire almost like it's Twilight or something. Like it's like this kind of light, frivolous vampire romance or something. Mm -hmm. If you've ever read that book, that is not what it is. (laughs) It's And I want to read, it's been a long time since I've read it, but Interview with the Vampire is a damn good book. And it's Mm. also a genuinely scary book, Mm -hmm. like disturbing. It's just one of those books that gets under your skin. And Anne Rice, she's she's just a very good writer. And I think she just deserves more respect. So a little uh, informational tidbit sidebar here. I used to, when I was in like high school and stuff, I used to, I spent a lot of time at bookstores. Uh, It was like Mm. one of my favorite things to do was to just go sit and like look through the books. And I read a lot of her, her erotica her like fairy tale erotica. I read yeah. almost all of The Claiming of Sleeping Beauty. That yeah. book is nerdy AF. Um, <laughs> and I mean, if I, you're into that stuff, check it out. This mm-hmm. is a pretty good story. Well, and I think this is why she has been somewhat critically dismissed is because her mm-hmm. stuff is very kind of lush. And like, there's a, even in like the interview with the vampire books, there's a lot of eroticism. So she gets mm-hmm. kind of dismissed as like pulpy women's romance erotica. Mm-hmm. But she's more than that. She's She's definitely like she's just a very good writer yeah also want to briefly talk about flannery o'connor she's mainly known as a southern gothic writer she's not particularly identified as a horror writer but i think when you read some of her short fiction particularly a good man is hard to find which is one of our most famous short stories mm-hmm. i mean i th- i think she's if she's not horror she's like horror adjacent okay 
Now, Flannery O'Connor is somewhat problematic. There's a lot of questions about whether she was or was not racist. Mm. There's a lot of racist language in her mm. work, but she was a Southern writer depicting these kind of awful Southern characters. Okay. She had, like, there was a general thought about her that she was more depicting the racism in a critical way, which uh-huh. I think is true when you read her books or okay. when you read, she's mostly known as a short story writer. Okay. She doesn't seem to be in support of it. She, she depicts racial dynamics in these very complex ways, mm. sophisticated ways. But there has been correspondence that was discovered <laughs> shit she was writing to friends and family that uh-huh. kind of shows she was she was pretty racist. Mm. Kind of like Lovecraft. Like a lot what, of it. What period is this? She was, an, uh, I'm not sure when she died, um, but she's kind of in the, I'm trying to remember when A Good Man Has Heart Defined came out. I want to say it's like late 30s, 40s, 50s. Okay. Probably into the 60s. I think she mm-hmm. died in the 1960s. Okay. I do recommend reading Flannery O'Connor, but just know there's, I mean, even A Good Man is Hard to Find. It's a great short story. Lots of racist language in okay. that story. Okay. A bit of an antidote to that, though, would be Octavia Butler. Okay. Who, again, I don't, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on because, A, everyone should know Octavia Butler. She's one of the most celebrated writers uh-huh. of the 20th century she's also mostly identified as a science fiction writer but she did write some books that i think fall close to the horror realm if not exactly horror okay. so octavia butler of course she was a black woman writer started writing in the 70s or started publishing i believe in the 70s which was you know kind of i mean for a black woman writer to be establishing herself in science fiction which is mm-hmm. a very as i discussed very white male gatekeepy kind of genre mm-hmm. pretty big deal she does have a couple books and series of books that that are for horror fans worth looking at. Uh, one is Fledgling. Okay. Uh, it, it's like a almost sci-fi take on vampires, focusing on black characters. Hmm. Also her Parable of the Sour <laughs> series, which is kind of a more like dystopian fiction, but has a lot of elements of horror as well. Okay. So Octavia Butler, she's definitely someone to look at. But someone I want to spend a little bit more time talking about uh, mm-hmm. from this time period is Daphne du Maurier. Okay. Because I think she's one, a lot of people know her, but they don't really understand how important she was for horror fiction. So Daphne du Maurier is most known, of course, for her novel, Rebecca. It's published oh. in 1938. Okay. Which I believe, didn't they just make a movie, unfortunately, starring Army Hammer? <laughs> I think they did. And I think from like every, like, I didn't see it because I think I watched the trailer and I was like, who cares? Yeah. Um <laughs> But I think from everything I saw from people that did see it, they were like, do not waste your time. I think it was sort of like globally panned. Yeah, I have not heard good things about it. Now, of course, the original movie adaptation of Rebecca was done by Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. It's an early Alfred Hitchcock, early-ish Alfred Hitchcock film. And it's a very good movie. Okay. But maybe instead of watching that first, go and read the book. Okay. Because it's a good book. I've read. It's been a long time since I've read it, but it's a good book. Not exactly horror, but again, kind of like Shirley Jackson stuff, sort of falls in that family gothic drama melodrama Okay. But as a horror writer, just a little bit of bio on her. Uh, She's born in 1907 in London. She's the middle daughter to a prominent actor manager named Sir Gerald Dumarier, and then his wife, an actor named Mariel Beaumont. Was he an actor and a manager or a manager of actors? He was an actor and a manager. 
Okay, thank you. Yeah, like London stage. Right. Um, so, and they were very, they were a very prominent theater family. And so these connections kind of helped her establish her literary career. She went on to marry a guy, a lieutenant general in the British Army, a guy named Frederick Roy Browning in 1932. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had three children. Unlike uh, Anne Radcliffe's marriage, from what I've read, it was not a particularly loving marriage. I think it was a very mm-hmm. kind of chilly marriage i don't think it was like abusive or anything but it just seems like it was not a super happy marriage she was also known to have been very aloof with her children very distant with her children especially while she was writing she would kind of go into her like tunnel vision Mm-hmm. Now, there are rumors that she might have been either lesbian or bisexual because there was a lot of gossip that she had numerous affairs, including with the wife of her U.S. publisher. Yikes. I don't know how true any of that is, so I'm just going to okay. put it out there. Okay, so okay. There's also theories that she might actually have been transgender because she has said in some of her correspondences that she had been a tomboy mm-hmm. her father would have preferred having a son and that she had wished she had been born a boy oh okay i see what you're saying yes okay. so but again is this cultural is this the time period is this trying to please her father or is this actually like a trans man right we don't know it's again it's speculative okay her husband died in 1965 And then she moved to Cornwall where she lived for a while. And then of course she passed away. So like I said, she's most known for the novel Rebecca, but we need to talk about her as a horror writer, particularly two works that are deeply, deeply influential. One is a short story from 1952 called The Birds. And it is- Hey. hey Okay. (laughs) And it is of course the basis for the 19, I want to say 63, 62, 63, something like that. Alfred Hitchcock film. Starring Tippi Hedren. Um, so so Hitchcock just had a thing for her writing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they're kind of, they fit together like a hand in a glove in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Now, The Birds, the short story, is actually very different. Like, like the movie of The Birds, I love that movie. It's actually probably my favorite favorite Hitchcock film, even though I wouldn't necessarily say it's the best Hitchcock film. It's very tonally weird if you haven't seen it, because like the first sort of half hour of it is like a romantic comedy. Mm. And then it turns into this apocalyptic horror story. (laughs) Like it's very strange. And of course it's set in Northern California. You know, Tippi Hedren is this um, young sort of socialite woman about town in San Francisco. Mm. She has this encounter with this guy, I think played by Rod Taylor. Mm-hmm. sort of flirty slash hostile kind of meet cute kind of thing she ends up buying two birds love birds driving up the coast where he lives because she's going to deliver them to his younger sister because they met in a pet store he was looking for birds for his little sister okay. and then when she gets to this town called bodega bay they have their little meet cutie romantic tension stuff and mm-hmm. then suddenly birds start attacking killing everybody <laughs> very weird very weird okay. Well, the short story of the birds, <laughs> it's really just the birds start attacking and killing people. It's focused on a farmer in Cornwall. And then all of a sudden shit goes haywire with the birds. Okay. Very spooky, very well-written. It's very short, very simple compared to the Hitchcock movie, mm, okay. but very effective. I actually read the short story before I saw the movie. I want to say I read the short story probably in elementary school or something. Mm, mm-hmm. And then even more important, she's known for her novella from 1971 uh, called Don't Look Now. Okay. Which was, of course, turned into a movie just a year or two later starring Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie, which was a very controversial film at the time because it had an explicit sex scene that was like, for the time, very 
explicit to the point where people are like, were they actually like, were they fucking? Okay. How explicit was it? I've watched it. I mean, it's, it's like by our standards today, it's, I mean, it's still pretty racy, but it's not like you don't see like penetration or anything. Right. But Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie, like I think they were either married or they were in a relationship. So there's like lots of rumors that they actually had sex while it was filming. I think that's probably mostly just like, hollywood legend making or whatever Uh (laughs) but it's based on this novella don't look now which is like a really great creepy portrayal of the effects of grief on a family oh okay so it's about this husband and wife they go there they just lost a child Mm -hmm. they go to venice as like a getaway to try and kind of get their mind away from their grief where they meet these two elderly sisters one of whom claims to be clairvoyant and is telling them like, you have to leave. You're in danger. You're in danger. You have to leave. Meanwhile, they see this mysterious little girl or the husband in particular sees this mysterious little girl running through the streets of Venice. And then the story just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. I don't want to give it away, but it's, it's one of my all time favorites. Mm, Okay. Okay. Also from the 1980s, we need to talk a little bit about a book called the house next door. Okay. 1978. The author is Anne Rivers Siddons. Now, she is, again, not particularly thought of as a horror writer. She's sort of considered, she's a very well-respected, like, Southern writer. I think she has Mm -hmm. since passed away. Yeah, she died just a couple years ago, 2019. She was 83 years old. Mm. I think The House Next Door was, like, her second book, though. And basically, it's this great, it's one, it's probably second to Haunting of Hill House for Mm -hmm. my favorite haunted house stories of all time. Oh, okay. Like I put it above The Shining. Like it's what's it called? The House Next Door. Okay. It focuses on this sort of hip. I don't know if they're hip, but they're like you know very like society kind of Atlanta couple, kind of middle aged couple living in the suburbs of Atlanta. And right next door to where they live was this kind of open plot of land that suddenly gets bought, and this hot young architect comes in and puts up this brand new house. Okay. And then the story just goes through this couple watching the neighbors move in into this house and something in the house is just destroying their lives so it goes through three neighbors that move in and the house like the shining just works on them and leads to death destruction madness and so what's fascinating about this book is that it's like why is this fucking house haunted it's brand new yeah evil in the house that's affecting these people what i love about the house next door is it just captures this like sort of southern gentility middle class kind Mm -hmm. of like the the main characters who are who are really just observing all this happening from next door they're very like witty kind of southerners you know mm. it's almost got a like steel magnolias meets the shining kind of vibe to it okay <laughs> um, do you find out what's going on with the house yes okay okay because I, I was like i'm not i was like i'm not gonna read this book i'll tell if it's you it's just gonna leave me yeah i'll hang i mean if you want because you you never read anything i suggest but if you want i'll tell you at the end <laughs> no <laughs> i think i might want to read it it's really good. I think you'll okay. actually enjoy it. It's not like super gory or anything. It's pretty fucked up. It's pretty dark. Okay. But it's not like violent dark. Okay. Um, so here's a quote. This is Anne River Siddons talking in Stephen King's Dance Macabre because he talks at length about this book in Dance okay. Macabre. This is where okay. I found out about it. And he actually interviewed her. I think he like reached out to all these authors and had them like write letters kind of explaining Mm. where they were coming from. So this Mm -hmm. isn't what she wrote to Stephen King. She says, the haunted house has always spoken specially and directly to me as the emblem of a particular horror. Maybe it's because to a woman, her house is so much more than that. It is a kingdom, responsibility, comfort, total world to her. 
to most of us anyway, whether or not we are aware of it. It is an extension of ourselves. It tolls an answer to one of the most basic chords mankind will ever hear. My shelter, my earth, my second skin, mine. So basic is it that the description of it, the corruption, as it were, by something alien takes on a peculiar and bone-deep horror and disgust. It is both frightening and violating, like a sly, terrible burglar. A house askew is one of the not-rightest things in the world. Hmm. Not rightest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love that quote. It's a little like, you can tell it's like an older Southern lady. You're like, well, as a woman, you know, right. the house is her kingdom kind of thing. But I think it really like gets at what is so disturbing about that book. Right. But I think even still, even if you sort of remove like, you know, the house is my dominion because I am, you know, a housewife. Uh, right. I think there's still something very timeless about right. the thing of like, in your home, you should be safe. You should be, you exactly. should be protected. And when you start to mess with that formula, it can be very not right. Right. Well, and there's, you know, there's, you know, the home invasion thriller, which I know like you've talked about as, like, <sighs> your least favorite. <laughs> yep. Like that's scary because it's this outside force coming into like your domain, like mm-hmm. puncturing the safety of your home. Yeah, and it is. Like, you know, she says the thing about violating, like, very right. much so. But what if, what if it's your house yeah. itself that's doing it? No, even more so. Fuck that. And again, not to spoil too much, but what I love about The House Next Door, it works very much like Haunting of Hill House and The Shining, and that it's not like there's a particular ghost kind of thing. Mm. It's more like there's just this evil presence. Mm-hmm. There's something about the house itself. Mm-hmm. That is just wrong. Okay. I read The House Next Door probably in middle school and liked it, I think, mm-hmm. but wasn't like blown away by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I reread it again like, maybe three, four years ago and was just like, oh my God, this is fucking genius. I mm-hmm. loved it. So The House okay. Next Door. I know it's available as an ebook because that's how I read it. So okay. I don't know if it's in print anymore as like a paperback, but I'm sure you can find it. Yeah. Okay. So those are like some of the big luminaries kind of through the 20th century that I wanted to talk mm-hmm. about. Now I just want to talk about, I think here's some more kind of contemporary women that I think y'all should read because okay. fucking great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the first I want to talk about is Caitlin R. Kiernan. Caitlin R. Kiernan is now saying that they are gender fluid. They okay. use either she, her, or they, them pronouns. Okay. Or I'm going to go with they, them. Caitlin R. Kiernan has been around for a while. I remember reading Caitlin R. Kiernan back in probably high school. Okay. So Caitlin was born in Scary's Island in 1964. They moved to the U.S. with their family when they were a young child and actually moved, mostly grew up in Alabama. They're a two-time winner of the World Fantasy Award and Bram Stoker Award, Ooh. which are like the two most prestigious awards yeah. in the genre. Interestingly, their sort of day-to-day career is actually they're a paleontologist. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> they, went, they went to school, got a degree in paleontology and actually co-wrote a paper describing a new species of mosasaur like back in the 90s. Hey, neat. So Mosasaur, if you guys don't know, it's like if you've watched Jurassic World, it's the big whale thing that jumps out. <gasps> um, yeah. Okay. They continue to work at the McWayne Science Center in Birmingham, Alabama, where they continue to study and publish papers on Mosasaurs. And then they're also writing like really fucking weird horror fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Like super weird. Like one thing I love about Caitlin or Kiernan is their stuff is just super fucking weird. 
Okay. Um, so the early Caitlin R. Cannon, their first book was Silk, came out in 1998. It was a novel. I haven't actually read that one, but they've really become known as like one of the greatest practitioners of the short horror story. Mm. And I think it's important, by the way, this is just a little sidebar. Mm-hmm. Like horror fiction, maybe more than other genres, is really geared towards the short story. I mean, we all love our horror novels, but there's really, there's just a culture within the horror world of really supporting people who are almost primarily short fiction writers. I think so you pro- think, you think like more than other genres, I think it, so. it, it supports the format of a short story. I think so. I think so. like, I know there are, obviously you have Asimov science fiction and Ellery Queen's mystery magazine, you know, so. Mm -hmm. you find short fiction in these other genres but really horror fiction is like kind of built around the short story that's like really how you establish yourself as a horror right right is as a short fiction writer i think personally i think it goes back to lovecraft and the pulps Um, oh okay but i'm also trying to think of like you know like romance novels as a short story like it's it's something that i don't know how well and I don't know if there are, I don't know how well that particular genre translates to like bite-sized. Right. Like I think it exists, but it seems like in other genres, it's almost more of like a side thing. Ah, okay. It's like, oh, and they write short stories, you know? Okay. Whereas in horror, it's like you can really establish yourself. And to a degree, I think also literary fiction more like, because you have, you know, like John Cheever and people like that who are really known as short fiction writers. Mm -hmm. But horror is just really built around the short story in a way that I think is interesting. And I think it is because horror really works in these short bites. Yeah. I love reading short horror fiction almost more Mm -hmm. than I love reading horror novels. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these women I'm talking about are actually kind of mostly known as short fiction writers because I really like I really experience their work primarily through their short fiction. Okay. So, so Caitlin or Kiernan, they're really have become known as one of the great short story writers in the genre. Early stuff was like very kind of like punk goth kind of vibe. Okay. They were very sort of like celebrated in like the goth community of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, they even performed in a goth folk blues band called Death <laughs> Little Sister. <laughs> in a goth folk blues band? Yeah. Okay. I don't think they recorded anything because I was lucky. I couldn't find anything. Dang. But I love the, like the band name was Death's Little Sister, which I love. Yeah. They were based in Athens, Georgia, which, you know, Athens is where bands like R.E.M. come out of. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot uh, of stuff coming out of Concrete Athens. Concrete Blonde. Exactly. It didn't last. It sounds like just for a few years, though. So some of Caitlin O'Kinnon's novels, Silk, like I mentioned, haven't read that one, unfortunately. Daughter of Hounds, also haven't read that. That's from 2007. Drowning Girl, a memoir, I have read that. And then probably next on my list after the book I'm reading now is their 2018 novel, Black Helicopters. They also wrote one of my favorite sort of Lovecraftian short stories. It's a story called Love is Forbidden, We Croak and Howl. Okay. It's from the anthology Lovecraft's Monsters from 2012, edited by Ellen Datlow. And put a pin in Ellen Datlow because I'm going to talk about her momentarily. Okay. Um, But before I get to Ellen Datlow, let's talk about Gemma Files. Okay. I think Gemma Files, like, I do really like Caitlin R. Cannon short fiction. I think Gemma Files is the best short story writer in horror of the moment. Um, so Gemma was born 1968 in London to actors Elva May Hoover and Gary Files. The family then moved to Toronto in 1969, where she still lives. So she's really primarily a Canadian writer. Okay. She graduated in 1991 from Ryerson University with a degree in journalism and then went on to work as a journalist and film critic in Toronto 
uh, writing for like the local kind of alternative weeklies and film journals and stuff, mm-hmm. really focusing a lot on like horror cinema, experimental cinema, avant-garde cinema, Canadian film. She's really kind of considered like an authority on horror cinema and, Can- and specifically Canadian horror cinema. She writes for film.com and then Rumorg magazine. Rumorg magazine is kind of like, I mean, Fangoria is back, but Rumorg uh-huh. is like the other big horror kind of movie magazine. Okay. Kind of replaced Fangoria when Fangoria died for a while. Oh, right. Um, and Rumorg is a Canadian uh, publication. Okay. But while she's doing this, she's also started publishing horror fiction. So first started publishing horror fiction in 1993. And then her short story, The Emperor's Old Bones, won the International Horror Guild Award in 1999. She has since gone on to publish a bunch of short fiction. I mean, she's one of those, if you see Gemma Files' name in like an anthology, you know that anthology is legit. Uh, if they get okay. Gemma Files, it's going to be good shit. And I couldn't find this, but I had listened to a podcast interview with her. I can't remember which show it was on, though. And she discusses being neurodivergent. Oh, okay. So I I believe she said she had Asperger's, but I don't remember for sure. Um, Okay. So, you know, qualified mention of that. (laughs) Um, Some of her short stories that are, or some of my favorite short stories uh, she has one called Each Thing I Show You is a Piece of My Death from 2010. Dang, with that title. Yeah. Uh, she's good. She's good with her titles. Uh, yeah. It was the winner. It was the 2010 winner of the Shirley Jackson Award for short fiction. Okay. She also has a short story called Slick Black Bones and Soft Black Stars. This is from 2012. It appeared in an anthology called A Season in Carcosa, which is all kind of a takeoff of Robert W. Campbell's King in Yellow. Like if, if anyone has ever watched True season one of true detective all the shit about the yellow king and carcosa this all comes from a book called the king in yellow from the late 1800s it was a huge influence on hp lovecraft okay huge influence on cosmic horror which i i would say Gemma files kind of mostly falls in the cosmic horror realm okay and so this it's basically this a season in carcosa is a tribute anthology to a king in yellow or the king in yellow okay and so her slick black bones and soft black stars appears in that she also has a short story. It's a, probably one of the scariest short stories I've ever read. It came out in 2019. It's called Venio, and it's in Vastarian Literary Journal, which you can find on Amazon. So okay. I would check that out. She's also uh, published some novels. She's Like I said, she's mostly known as a short fiction writer, but she has published some no- novels. For instance, the Hexlinger series, which I have not read these yet. They're like, from what I've read about them, they're like weird horror westerns. Okay. Um, I've been wanting to read them. I just haven't gotten to them yet. And then she wrote one of, I think, maybe one of my five favorite horror novels of all time. It's a book called Experimental Film. came out in 2015. And it's this weird, almost autobiographical horror novel where you can tell the lead character is somewhat based on her. She's this like avant-garde film critic based in Toronto. Mm. Film critic slash filmmaker, I think. Okay. And she comes into contact with a lost film of this, like a lost silent film from like the 1920s. And then she starts studying it. There's something supernatural about this film. I don't want to say any more about it. It is one of those books that is so well written. The character work is so amazing. 
Mm. Like you just believe all of the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, also, as like a film person, a film buff, you know, she goes deep into like the avant-garde and experimental film worlds. And I okay. was just like, I really appreciate it. It was so specific. Right. Also, it's like, I know what she's talking about. Right. <laughs> this book was written just for me. Yeah. So here's a quote. This is from that John Langan review of her. And again, John Langan, also a great novelist slash critic. He says, where this novel succeeds is in its understanding of film from the process by which it is made to those by which it is disseminated and discussed from its history to its culture. Lois Carnes, who is the main character of the book, is steeped in movies and she incorporates our understanding into her narrative pausing to deliver relevant information when necessary. Lois is a self-conscious narrator, always aware of how she's framing the story she's recounting and including the reader in her strategizing. The result is an experimental novel about her quest for a set of films whose experimental qualities extend far beyond her expectations. Now, I have been pushing this book on people for a while, and I think friends of mine who've read it who maybe aren't as steeped in the movie world as me have read it. They're like, I don't know. I liked it. I mean, I didn't get a lot of it. I was like, ugh. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're like a film person (laughs) who also likes horror, you should read that book. Okay. Very good. She's she's just an incredible writer. What's the title? Experimental film. Okay. Oh, film. Well, okay. Yeah. Next up, I want to talk about Tanana Rivdu. Okay. So she's a black woman writer. She was born in 1966 in Tallahassee, Florida, to a civil rights activist named Patricia Stevens Dew and a civil rights lawyer named John Dew Jr. Now let's I just want to talk a little bit about Patricia Stevens Dew because mm-hmm. she sounds like a fucking badass. Okay. So she was uh she was a civil rights activist. She was trained in nonviolent protest by CORE, which was the Congress of Racial Equality. Mm-hmm. She spent 49 days in jail after she refused to pay a fine for sitting at a whites only lunch counter in tallahassee oh uh-huh her eyes were permanently damaged by tear gas at a student protest and so she wore dark glasses for the rest of her life <sighs> she later served in the leadership of both core and the naacp mm. and then with her daughter Tananarev, uh she co-wrote a memoir called freedom in the family a mother-daughter memoir of the fight for civil rights have not read that Mm because I didn't know about it until doing the research for this, but I'm going to track that down and read it because that's nice. Fantastic. Yeah. So Tananarev, her daughter, she earned a BA in journalism from Northwestern University uh, in Chicago and then Mm -hmm. later got a master's in literature uh, with an emphasis on Nigerian literature uh, Mm -hmm. from the University of Leeds in Yorkshire. England. After she got her master's, she began working as a journalist and a columnist for the Miami Herald. Her first novel was published in 1995. It's called The Between. I've read it. I don't remember it that well, but I remember liking it. Okay. It was nominated for the Bram Stoker Award in 1996. She also published uh, like a really, really weird, spooky haunted house type story called The Good House in 2003. But she's probably most most well known for what are, what's called the African Immortals series. Mm. So the books in that series are My Soul to Keep, 1997, The Living Blood from 2001, uh, Blood Colony from 2008, and then My Soul to Take, 2011. I've read the first two books in that series. Uh, basically, it's this woman. Uh, she's she's like a young, youngish black woman. She's married this kind of perfect man, but he's like sort of distant. Like she feels like there's something unknowable about him. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, a series of like horrible murders starts happening around her. And what Mm -hmm. she finds out is that her husband is actually part of this African tribe that 400 years earlier basically sold their soul to live forever. So he's an immortal. And basically this tribe, he's like left the tribe, his runoff, married her, sort of trying to hide. They have decided they want him back. So they're behind 
these murders. Ooh. And they're planning to murder her and their child to essentially Ugh. get him back. So he's like, well, Ugh. we can stop that if I turn you into one of these immortals. But she doesn't, like, it's basically like you have to sell your soul to become. Yeah. Ooh, um, okay. The first two books, My Soul to Keep and The Living Blood, are really great. I gotta admit, I haven't read them in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't know that she had continued the series uh, with Blood Colony and My Soul to Take. So I am excited mm-hmm. to go back and reread these and read all of them. Nice. Um, if you've watched, there's a documentary on Shudder called Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. She's one of the featured like academics discussing it's basically mostly discussing horror black characters black filmmakers you know in the movies Mm. she also created a class at the uh university of california los angeles so ucla she developed a course called the sunken place racism survival in the black horror aesthetic which some people might have seen a video from the class went viral because the class is all essentially framed around the movie get out and a video from the class went viral when jordan peele just randomly showed up to her class oh (laughs) fuck okay yeah she's super like she's a really good writer but she's also like a super respected academic she's Mm. she's on the associated faculty in the mfa creative writing program at antioch university which is in la Mm -hmm. so she's she's badass Nice. This one I'm excited to talk about because I'm actually going to be in an anthology with her coming out in May. Hey, cool. Uh, But it's a woman named Gwendolyn Keist. Okay. She's, I'm not sure, it doesn't say online how old she is, so I have no idea. But she's pretty young. I think like, if I look at her pictures, I would like guess she's in her 30s. Okay. Who knows? I could be (laughs) completely, she could be, she could be 17 for all I know. Right. She was born in Massillon, Ohio. And then raised uh, in New Philadelphia, Ohio. She now lives outside Pittsburgh, where she writes theater reviews for the Pittsburgh City Paper, uh, which is like their alternative weekly. Okay. Now this I couldn't find much information on, but this was just from Wikipedia. It says she worked as an independent filmmaker before moving into writing fiction, but I couldn't find anything on her filmmaking career. So I don't know what that means. She's another fantastic short fiction writer. So she's the one who wrote that book and her smile will untether the universe. Oh, uh-huh. Which is, I just think the best title ever. Such a good title. A couple stories just to highlight that probably my two favorite short stories in that book are Mm -hmm. something borrowed, something blue, and then the Clawfoot Requiem. Okay. Here's a quote from Dave Sims writing a review for Cemetery Dance. He says, the 14 stories of, and her smile will untether the universe hit as hard as a sledgehammer packed with ambrosia and hallucinogens. Her style is both brutally dark and beautiful at the same time. The prose is beyond rich, yet not overwhelming. Think Peter Straub crossed with Shirley Jackson, and you just might have an idea of how intoxicating her stories can be. Wow. And I think that's a good word, intoxicating. Like, that's mm. that's sort of how I feel when I read her stuff. Mm-hmm. She's also published a novel called The Rust Maidens in 2018, won the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in First Novel. And she has what looks like kind of a long novella called Bone Set and Feathers, which came out in 2020. I have not read that one yet. I'm going to be in an anthology that's coming out, I think, in May or June from Dark Peninsula Press. Um, that's cool. Violent Vixens. And uh, <laughs> Gwendolyn Keist is also going to be in that anthology. So Very cool. I'm very excited because I'm a huge fan of hers. Okay. Fanboy. <laughs> yeah, fanboy. <laughs> that's what this whole episode for me is just being a fanboy. That's I got good. Two, two more to get through. Okay. Not get through like it's an ordeal, but to talk about. <laughs> so this is a fucking chore. Oh my yeah. God. All right. <laughs> Also, a younger writer. She's in her 30s. Her name is Nadia Bulkin. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was born in 1987 in Jakarta, Indonesia, to mm-hmm. a Muslim father and a Christian mother. The family moved to Omaha 
when she was 11. It sounds like it was after the death of Suharto, who's like the military dictator who ruled Indonesia for like, I think it's like mm. 30 or 40 years or something. Okay. But after he died, they moved to Omaha. She ended up graduating cum laude from Barnard College with a degree in political science, then got a master's from American University's School of International Service. And she's currently working as a consultant in Washington, D.C. And I was trying to figure out, so I think she's like very much into international relations, uh, international yeah. politics, etc. I was trying to figure out what she's consulting and it wasn't super clear, but right now she's a principal research specialist at Gartner. Got okay. this from LinkedIn. Just look okay. up on LinkedIn. <laughs> now we're stalking people on LinkedIn. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and I was like, well, what the hell is Gartner? And it says it's the world's leading research and advisory company. So I didn't okay. do a lot more reading than that. But from looking at like her past work, it looks like she does a lot in like Asian politics, Asian okay. economics, Asia issues, basically. Okay. But she's also a very, she's like sort of one of the hot, she and Gwendolyn Keist are like two of the hottest uh, fiction writers of the moment. Like everyone's talking about them. They're just, they're kind of just exploding. Interesting. Um, okay. So she's been published in places like Chizine, A Strange Horizons, Three Lobed Burning Eye, which is my favorite magazine title, but I hate yeah. submitting to them because they're like, it's like you basically have to copy and paste to submit short stories to them into this like little uh, tiny window. So not, but they're you know whatever three low burning guy i guess you're good yeah whatever um, <laughs> in 2018 she was nominated for the shirley jackson award for both a short story a story called live through this and then for a single author collection which is she said destroy she said destroy and uh gwendolyn keist's inner smile will untether the universe are probably the two best single author collections i've read in the last couple of years like there's not one bad story in either of those collections interesting what's interesting like so, well i'll just let john lingan talk about it in his review okay. of she said destroy he says nadia Bulkin's stories take well-known genre tropes and situations and decenter them in part by relocating them to a new time and or place and in part by telling them from different points of view, usually those of figures near but not at the dead center of the narratives. As a result, what was familiar becomes strange, revealing new aspects of itself. Already, Bulkin has earned a reputation as a writer interested in the political implications of her story's situation. It's certainly true, but there's a way in which the political inner work frequently leads back to the personal, to the desires that split us. Long after the last page has been turned, her complement of monsters stalks the edges of our vision. And I think, so what he's saying there about the political turning personal in our stories, like mm, that, that's mm -hmm. what I think of when I think of her. I can't remember the name of the story. I should have written it down. But the first, I think it's the first story in She Said Destroy is basically about this like dictator. And I think, I, don't, I can't remember if she specifically says it's Indonesia. I think she does. But he's this dictator who wants like sort of almost godlike powers. So he keeps going to the shaman to give Ooh. him powers. But the shaman has him do things like, okay, the first thing you have to do is eat a bullet that you've taken out of someone that you've shot and killed, like a, like a dissident. And so the dictator eats the bullet and then he starts spitting like tiny bullets. Is he, you know, and so each thing he has to do like transforms him more and more into this like, monstrous figure. Okay. It's, and it's got a twist at the end that is just one of the most devastating things I've ever read. Okay, you can tell me that twist. Yeah. Um, when we're done. And she's a fantastic writer. If you really want to like know what's happening in horror fiction at the moment, like she's kind of where to start. Mm -hmm. And then last, I want to, well, sort of last, <laughs> want to talk about Ellen because I got a couple like quick little honorable mentions I want to throw. Okay. But <laughs> um, I just want to talk a little bit about Ellen Datlow. Ellen Datlow is not a writer. Uh, okay. She's an editor, but she's probably the most inf 
important horror editor of the month. You've heard me talk about her. Mm -hmm. And you just said earlier to put a pin in her. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So she was the fiction editor of Omni Magazine from 1981 to 1998, which is one of the biggest like sci-fi magazines. Mm -hmm. And then she's now sort of seen as like the premier freelance. I think she's freelance because she does stuff for a bunch of different companies like anthology editors in sci-fi horror and fantasy anthologies she's basically the tastemaker in horror right now like if you get picked by ellen datlow like like that that's what you want if you're a horror writer is you want ellen datlow to be like you we're gonna put you in this book so she has published Gemma files she has published john langan she has published nadia vulcan she published gwendolyn keist like she's the person right now Mm. as an editor she's probably most known for her best horror of the year series which i think it's like up to 15 volumes or something oh wow okay um her anthologies have won five bram stoker awards 10 world fantasy awards dang two international horror guild awards and three shirley jackson awards so she's just like She's the shit. In 2011, the Horror Writers Association gave her a Lifetime Achievement Award. So just real quick, some of my favorite anthologies she's published would be Lovecraft Unbound from 2009, After, 19 Stories of the Apocalypse from 2012, Mm -hmm. Lovecraft's Monsters from 2014, Nightmares, A New Decade of Modern Horror, 2016, Children of Lovecraft from 2016, The Devil in the Deep from 2018. The Devil in the Deep I particularly like because it's like sea monster horror, which is one of my favorites. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I could go on and on. Like, there's so many, like, just, I'm just going to rattle off a few names there's like melanie tim joyce carol oates helen oyayemi carmen maria machado who I know mm, mm. Susie mckee sharness who i believe is local i think she lives in albuquerque oh cool uh laurel hightower kathy koja lois gresh barry wood who's i almost included a section on barry wood because she's one of my favorites but i was like this is going to be like 18 million hours long yeah <laughs> um, ania alborn who's also local i think she lives in albuquerque hey oh um, local shout out yeah you're listening to the podcast yeah <laughs> Yeah, I have not uh, met her, but I would love to get coffee with her if she's listening. Pick her brain. Sylvia Moreno Scotty, you can't use our podcast as a dating service. (laughs) She's married with kids. Whatever. I don't know. I'm just saying you can't troll for chicks. (laughs) Yes, that that was the entire point of my... Not just Long of this story, tribute. but of the of the of just your involvement the with the podcast <laughs> yeah. is just looking for some strange. Yeah, <laughs> I love that you you throw that in there when I've done this long tribute to women. No, it's been so lovely. I'm sorry. (laughs) Also, just very briefly want to mention Sarah Reed, uh, who I have not read, but I keep being told you have to read her. She has a book called The Bone Weaver's Orchard. She's also going to be in that Violent Vixens book. Nice. Um, And then last, I do want to highlight two women that I have been working with. Mm -hmm. One of them, I believe, is listening to the podcast. Uh, recently so the first is rebecca roland she's a writer and editor Uh, she has a novel that she co-wrote called pieces in 2019 Mm -hmm. she also has a short story collection called the horrors hiding in plain sight from 2018 okay and she has edited two anthologies that i'm in or gonna be in one is called shadowy natures came out september of last year Mm -hmm. it's stories of psychological horror and then one that's coming out in march called the half that you see which is like dreams and perception horror cool and then she wrote one of my favorite short stories that i've read recently it's called the cave and it appears in little demon digest volume one which i also am in so you guys should go find it so rebecca if you're listening you're awesome and then also very quickly want to talk about bridget nelson she is the 
publishing assistant for a company called Sinister Smile Press, who I have appeared in a couple anthologies. One is coming out, well, for those of you listening, it will have come out on Monday. For me and Amelia, oh. it comes out tomorrow because <laughs> we're recording Neat. on Sunday. Okay. The first one that came out in October, it's called If I Die Before I Wake, Volume 3, Tales of Deadly oh. Women and Retribution. And Bridget is the publishing assistant for this company, but she's also a writer. So she has a short story in that anthology called Political Suicide. I really dug that story. And I may be wrong. I think I've seen her say this. Uh, I think it's her first published story. Oh, cool. Um, what it reminded me of was one of my favorite Stephen King stories. It's called Dolan's Cadillac. It's like... Uh, a really fucked up revenge story. Mm. But Bridget's story actually gets even more fucked up and weird nice. than the Stephen King story. But also just Bridget's just lovely to work with. She's Yay. been awesome. So I just wanted to mention those two awesome ladies. And well that, done. <laughs> and that is my, uh, it's not really a story, I guess my list <laughs> for this week. <laughs> yeah, you did a listicle, um, yeah. which is fine. Sometimes it's like that. So nice. Fantastic. What a, what a broad expanse of topics we covered in yeah. this week's episode. <laughs> um, and since, I mean, we are now pushing two and a half hours of recording, we should probably go ahead and say goodbye. You know, we'll, Scotty and I will do light topics next week yeah. so that we can chat a little bit more. Um, or if you don't like it when we do that, let us know, I guess, in the <laughs> comments, but politely, please don't forget to subscribe, subscribe, <laughs> subscribe. Up. Let, me tr- subscribe. <laughs> let me try that one more time. Don't forget to subscribe. Um, <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, share, do all the things. Again, we know that that's something that everybody says in their podcast, but it helps us be seen by more by more people. So, you know, we can keep sharing these weird stories with you guys. Yeah, we've gotten a couple like shout out mentions on Instagram. Oh, we have, and it makes it so cool. Yeah, we really appreciate it. So thanks, Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should start naming these people by name as incentive. Uh, Uh, Or we can do a Patreon. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have a meeting about that. Okay, Okay. all right. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right, well, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. Stay weird, everybody. Bye. Bye. Friends will blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.